Today's Dave Chang Show is brought to you by the Yahoo Sports app. Are you ready for live football on your phone? With the Yahoo Sports mobile app, you got it. Watch local and primetime NFL games on your phone or tablet all season long. Never miss your local game. Never miss a big national matchup. All you need is the Yahoo Sports app. Get the Yahoo Sports mobile app and you are golden. Today's Dave Chang Show is also brought to you by Backblaze. Support for today's show comes from Backblaze, offering unlimited cloud backup on Macs and PCs, all for just $5 a month. This is literally my dream service because I lose data all the time. Access all of your data anywhere on the web or on the go via your phone. And you can restore just one file or all of your files. The choice is yours. There's no additional charges, just $5 a month for full backups. Make sure you visit backblaze.com slash Chang so they know where you came from and to continue to support the show. Receive a fully featured 15-day free trial at backblaze.com. Go there, play with it, start protecting yourself from potential bad times. Start today. And now, The Dave Chang Show. Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. Today's guest is the artist Dave Cho. My wife describes Dave Cho. If this was one of those movies where someone was making a decision and you have a, a bubble pop up and there's an angel and then you have the devil influencing the decision, Dave Cho is the devil. And I would often be the angel, which is funny because I don't think many people would describe it that way. But Dave Cho is someone that I have become very close to over the years, probably seven, eight, nine years ago. I don't even know, but it feels like we've known each other for years. And over our friendship, I have disagreed or gotten angry with almost everything he's done. And that is not hyperbole. It's constant war with him over the things he says, what he does, the the people he hangs out with, the decisions he makes, some choices that I just can't understand and the inappropriate things he does. But it's like seeing someone so broken and in their brokenness, I can see some of my own struggles and we could bond over that as different as we are. One of the people that he bonded over the years was Tony Bourdain. And I introduced them a while back and they're both addicts, Tony in his way and Dave in his own. But that addiction is what made their friendship a very different one than everyone else. And it was through that friendship that I got in a massive conversation and argument with Dave when Tony had passed because I disagreed vehemently with how publicly he was talking about it. And this is one of the reasons why he went on this podcast. We recorded this maybe a month and a half ago, and Tony's passed almost three months ago. And I've debated airing this because there's a lot of tough things in here. There's a lot of things that I don't agree with. Bill Simmons is another person that with Dave Chove, they've become fast friends, joins us around the 20-minute mark. And Dave has this amazing magnetic personality because he's so raw, he's so honest, he's so vulnerable that it draws people in. And he's so incredibly talented that it's those that are closest to him, those that are his friends, find it maddening that he makes so many stupid choices. But we still support him, even though... I would say almost everyone that is friends with him does not agree with his positions he takes or 
This is all in the past. He's really made some leaps and bounds in terms of changing who he is. And he's becoming the person that we all hoped that he would. And for all my jokes, I'm really proud that he's getting there. He's far from it. He's still incredibly rough. But we got in a conversation a little about Tony, and that's why we brought him on board. And to tie it into the micropod we did about mental health, something I still can't believe that I did, but I was um, shocked to see how many people responded well to it in the fact that there was someone that could talk about their pain or, or my pain and they could relate to it. So this is for a couple people that I know might not listen to this, but I really like them to listen to this pod because I think there's some kernels of truth in all the nonsense that's in this pod and all the things that are disagreeable in this pod. I hope that they listen in its entirety because there are some kernels of truth and wisdom that I think will be very, very beneficial in their struggles. And you know who you are, and I wish you guys the best. And here is this very long, very strange, and probably, and not probably, definitely sometimes inappropriate conversation. Here's Dave Cho, Bill Simmons, and myself. Welcome, Dave Cho. Cho Chang method in the house. <laughs> Thanks for having me. You're sort of one of the earliest figures to actually have a podcast. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think I went through something that maybe you're going through right now of just I felt completely misunderstood or when someone would write a story about me, they would always misquote me or take things out of context. And I was like, how can I say tell my side of the thing? So like I always love going on Joe Rogan or Howard Stern or any live show because nothing's edited out, right? And so I was like, I want to tell my story. And when I tell stories, they're very long. And they go for a while and I don't like to edit myself. So that's what I did. Not knowing that <laughs> if I sit here and I think about the world of broadcasting, Howard Stern, Adam Carolla, Kevin Smith, you know, people that I listen to, people that I look up to, especially like Adam Carolla and Howard Stern, they, they just seem miserable and they talk about how miserable and they complain about everything. And, uh, I just was like, what the fuck am I doing? Like, I just had this soapbox and I would just get on it and I would just talk about anything and everything and just say anything. I was like, no one's going to listen to this shit. No one's going to listen to it. It's just me talking to a couple like art outcasts and uh, it ended up ruining many people's lives. And your own life. And my own life, <laughs> which is... Which we'll get to. Which, you know, if we zoom out, it's what I always wanted anyways. But yeah, and so... When you asked me to do your podcast, I was like, I don't know. Why? Like, you're like a weird guy, dude. Do you ever sit and just think about your life? Yeah, it's fucking weird and surreal all the time. But do you ever like really sit and like just like, I know you think about it and then you get into your head and you start talking about it. I'm like, you fucking make pork buns and like kimchi out of apples. And then you get to hang out with like presidents and supermodels. And it's fucking bizarre. Like you're alive in a time in history where chefs who no one gives a shit about are like celebrities now and like you want to do a fucking podcast like i don't know i just did macaulay culkin's podcast literally just to tell him like why are you doing a podcast you did it you were well, the home alone you know, kid you escaped you're so, out of it and then you just come back with a fucking pod cho being the fuck the, a podcast the, as great of an artist as you are you are equally as great of a hypocrite <laughs> oh i'm the greatest hypocrite so for those that are just finally tuning in and they've never listened to Dave Cho before or whatever, like this is just like a lot. There's a lot of inside baseball knowledge, a lot of history. We're going to try to go through it all. But before I do, I'm going to say like, 
you're a hypocrite simply because we walk in, there's a camera here, and every time we talk about this, you're like, Chang, you can't do this. What the fuck are you doing? You're spinning off the planet, blah, blah, blah. And you're doing a podcast. I'm done. I'm out. I'm never going to do anything ever again. And then lo and behold, you're working on a new TV show, like a total <laughs> asshole. Uh, where do why? I start? Yeah. Like, so why are you projecting on me when you're doing it yourself? Okay. So I got the money without the fame, right? I have some fame, but nothing where I can't like walk down the street or go to the supermarket, right? Like one person a week goes, Hey, there's Dave Chill. It's nothing. And uh, one of the first times I met Anthony Bourdain, you said, hey, come have lunch at Chateau Marmont. And my friend Tony's going to be there, not knowing that it was Anthony Bourdain. And I had just done the Howard Stern show. And Scott Rudin had heard that show. He's a Hollywood producer, great Hollywood producer. And he heard that show and he's like, I want to turn your life into a sitcom. Like, Korean Curb Your Enthusiasm, Eastbound and Down, like one of those kind of shows. I was like, you know, this is what, five, six years ago? I was like, fuck yeah, I'm in. Let's do this. Like, and uh, I sat down with you and Tony at Chateau and I was like, what? The fucking guy we're having lunch with is Anthony Bourdain. Oh shit, this guy's like my hero. And so the three of us are sitting there having lunch. It was like an hour, two hour lunch. I mean, we must have got interrupted at least 10 times, right? I'm like, how do you live your life? And, and for the record, they weren't interrupting us. They were interrupting. Yeah. They were, talk to Tony. Exactly. We're having lunch and we're talking about whatever. I'm and, odd job, his bodyguard. <laughs> and every 10 minutes, like clockwork, someone gets up and goes, and Chateau is like one of the places in LA where you can go and be a celebrity and no one bothers you. But he's Anthony Bourdain. And I go, how do you go get milk? Like, how do you live your life? Like, and it's not like someone's interrupting. Hey, let me get a selfie. Let me get a picture. It's like interrupting with. Dude, I know you're having lunch with your friends right now, but I just got to tell you. And it's uh, idol worship. It's like, you're my hero. I worship you. And it's just like, and he's so nice. And he says yes. And he talks to everyone for a little bit. And, and, uh, and that stayed with me. And I went to go do my HBO signing. And they're like, sign your life rights on the thing. And you got Scott Rudin. You got HBO. And I was like, I'm already rich. Do I want Bourdain's life? He seems miserable. Like, I don't want this life. And people were like, you, you said to me, you said, you got to do it. You got to do it. And I was like, I got to do it. He's like, man, there's nothing. There's no, let me for the record, I'm saying you got to do it. Number one, because you are iconoclast. There's no one like you. And while I don't always agree, actually, I disagree with almost every position you take. (laughs) It's true. Like we're yin and yang. Like I don't agree with I can't even remember why we agree on anything, but that's been our relationship. And you can still be my friend. And I say no, or I say that's a bad idea, or I don't agree with you. But the one thing I do appreciate was the fact that you broke the mold on what it's like to be an Asian guy, a Korean American, so many different things. And I thought it would be great to have you represent something that half the world would find incredibly disagreeable. Right? Yeah. Simply because of that. Right. And that's why I was like, you should do it. And I believed it. I was like, I don't really want this kind of life where I can't go to the supermarket and I get interrupted every 10 minutes. You never go to the supermarket, A, number one. That's true. (laughs) But you know what I'm saying? And so I bought into what you're saying. I was like, I don't really want this. It was never my dream to be like a big Hollywood actor. And that's the other thing is they're like, you need to play yourself. And I was like- But Dave, too, truthfully, you also like love yourself too, to the point where you want people to know this stuff. Yeah, but at what cost, you know? And so I'm, I'm juggling that. And so you're saying, 
there's no Asians on TV that are in media that are representing me. It's got to be you, Dave. It's got to be you. And I was like, yeah, it's got to be me. It's got to be me. And, you know, history will show itself how things turned out. It wasn't me. It was you. <laughs> it wasn't me. It, had to, it was fucking you. And I was like, yes, you're Jerry Seinfeld. And I get to fucking drop in on your show like Kramer. And I love it. It's like, I don't have to carry any of the weight. I'm like your dumb friend that just pops in and out. And that's, that's the choice I made. I remember sitting there holding the pen and the lawyers and everyone just sitting there going, that's it, Dave. This is it. Your life is so interesting that we're going to turn it into a show and no actor can play you. You're going to play yourself. You're going to be like Larry David. I'm like hearing the Curb Your Enthusiasm music in my head. I'm hearing the bass from Seinfeld. And I'm like, this is it. I'm like, I like my life. I'm going to walk But you didn't. Right. But I liked it enough where I was like, we'll we'll get to that. I liked the things that I like to do in darkness and I didn't need like a light shown on those things. You know, I like to hide in the shadows. So I didn't, I didn't need everyone watching my every step, especially if the show was huge. So I walked away from it. And so you ask me now, why now? Well, it's once again, measuring things like I don't want to do a TV show just to do a TV show. And first of all, let's just clarify. It's my friend that's just (laughs) filming. And it's like anyone who lives in LA, any meeting, any lunch place you walk by, you hear, yeah, I got a Netflix deal. I got a Netflix deal. (laughs) It's like, I'm making a show that most likely no one will ever see in the same way I made a podcast that I thought no one was ever going to listen to. So I'm just making it. I'm funding it myself because I'm rich and I have money and I'm, I don't like taking orders from people. And so I have this experience. And now that you've done one season of Ugly Delicious, I don't know if you have this experience, but I did Parts Unknown with Anthony Bourdain. I did uh, one season, season two of Vice on HBO. And I did a few things here and there. It's an interesting thing to film stuff. And the artists in, in media and programming are the editors, right? their brushstrokes are what is what you end up seeing. And there'd always be, everything would end up on the cutting room floor. The editors, the producers, everyone's laughing. They're like, Dave, this is fucking so inappropriate, so insane. And I go, why isn't it in the show? And they're like, because we can't show that stuff on TV. We can't say that on TV. And so I was like, all right, I'll just make my own show. And my purpose for the show is there's certain things that have like a stigma to them like mental illness, addiction, rehab, therapy, these things, they just, it means like something's wrong with you. It means something's like fucked up with you. And there's so many people in society that are fucked up and they can't talk about it. And if you ask anybody who you look up to, who you like worship, who do you want to be like when you grow up? They say like Michael Jordan or Anthony Bourdain. And these people are worshiped in society. They're like gods, right? And you're worshiping only their career and their achievements of what they did. And they seem like miserable people when you meet them. It's like, I did this, this, and this. I fucking killed it in this business. I killed it in this industry. But I'm like, but you're a failure as like a human being. Like, like, do you want, I don't know. I'm, I'm a little bit all over the place because, uh, because that's just uh, what you are all the time anyway. <laughs> so if anyone's listening to this and be like, I have no idea yeah, what the fuck. I'm sorry. This is just, this is just uh, par for the course. I'm making a show. No one's probably ever going to see it. But that's also not true in the sense that people will watch it. And also I, you're also doing this because you're fucking bored. That's not true. I'm not bored. I think you're bored. That's you projecting. You have a fucking the hottest restaurant in LA right now, like six month waiting list. Your fucking show on Netflix is a hit. This fucking new podcast is a hit. I mean, I don't know how many other projects you got going. 
And it's like, how much more shit do you need? Like I wake up every day and someone will call me and be like, Hey Dave, I know you're really busy. And I go, I'm, I'm not busy. I'm not doing shit today. I That's why. Right. Yeah. You're confirming what I'm just saying. No, you're, I'm, you're, but, you're bored. No, I'm not bored. <laughs> I'm enjoying, I'm, I'm enjoying, I'm smelling the flowers. You know, I'm, I'm enjoying life. Um, so if you ha- are listening, you, you might realize that we are, uh, talking like we've known each other forever. In fact, we've only known each other less than 10 years, probably seven, eight years. And almost right off the bat, we became incredibly good friends. And in the weirdest sense, because we are sort of polar opposite individuals, but really simultaneously very similar in in many ways. And I want to dial it back just a little bit because without going in terms of the entire bio of Dave's life, because if you want to, you should just listen to his Howard Stern show appearance, which is a rambling, incoherent mess of like three and a half hours about how he got to where he did or the, any of the numerous other podcasts. But I want to bring it back to Lynn Sandy. And we can start there because there's so many points to talk about. I think this is probably the best entry point to get to your life. So I don't remember what happened first. Hey, Chris, did Lynn Sanity happen before Cho or vice versa? Vice versa. So Cho happened first. So I, I got to know Dave Cho through our mutual friend, Dan the Automator, Dan Nakamura, because as we joke, there's probably less than 10 to 20 people that are Asian American in the creative arts in some form of capacity. And Dan's a huge foodie. And I got to know him really well over the years at the first restaurant. And almost every time I would meet Dan, Dan would say, hey, you got to meet this guy, Dave Cho. Like you guys are exactly the same. And I never liked that comparison. I didn't either. I mean, he would, the, he's saying the same thing to me and I'm like, fuck that. I don't want to meet my twin. Like, yeah. I, I, I hate myself enough. I don't need another person just like me. And I would hear these crazy stories about this artist and he's doing all these things. And I'm like, this guy sounds like he's deranged. And we put it off meeting each other for many, many years until around the year the Cosmopolitan in Las Vegas opened up, which is probably six, six plus years ago, seven years ago. Anyway, we finally meet up and this is a true story. There was a store on the first floor because the Cosmo wasn't supposed to be a uh, casino. It was supposed to be like a commercial, like residential building. And there was a store with like eight items in it. And everything was like north of like $20,000. It was the most obnoxious fucking store. It was like sprockets. And we were supposed to meet up later that day. And it was like a blind date almost. Um, And I walk past to check in and I walk past the store and I go in because it's so obnoxiously sparse. And there's this Technicolor coat that with like peacock, it was just like gross, ugly. And I look at the price tag and it's like $37,000. And I'm like, what kind of asshole would ever buy this goddamn coat? It's so dumb. I go in, check in and I get a text. We're going to meet on like the second floor and go to like get something to eat. And as I get to the meeting location, I see this Asian dude with a scraggly beard walking towards me in the exact same coat that I just saw like three hours earlier. And I'm like, there's no way this, this asshole bought this stupid ass coat that I just saw downstairs. We go in, it is, he's wearing the same coat. And I'm like, Hey, Dave Ching, Dave Cho, pleasure to meet you. Cho Chang. Cho Chang. And I'm like, Hey man, like, by chance, did you did you buy this coat downstairs? And he's like, yeah, I was cold. That's what you said. And I'm like, what the fuck? Who is this person? And then I realized quickly, I am not even remotely close to you. I was so pissed at Dan that he would even conflate the fact that we might be similar. Look, we're completely different in many different ways of how we see the world. And we're very same in our brokenness. 
and in the way we were hurt and are, we're traumatized growing up. And that's what bonds us together, I think, or that I know. That's a funny story. That's a true story. And to make it sad clown, laugh now, cry later. I'm a severe, severe gambling addict. Like I have no problem, especially when Dave met me at my sickest. I had figured out a system where I would win at gambling and I had made so much money that I was bored. That time I could say I was really bored and I was ready to lose at that point. I was ready to lose money. But let me, let, let me back up a little bit. Okay. Dave had won so much money and you hear these stories about these asshole gamblers and they make blah, blah, blah. And you're like, whatever, until you actually meet this kind of asshole. And literally, I didn't believe it. He showed me the text. We're, we're eating. We're actually eating at the buffet. And he's like, oh man, I just got kicked out of the Venetian. I'm like, what do you mean you got banned? He's like, oh, I got banned. Like, look at this email. And it was like from your host saying like, you're no longer able to gamble here, here, and here. Not because you cheated, because you won too much money. And you had a standing room at almost all the casinos. So you're like, you didn't want to stay at the Cosmo, but you wound up staying. So you have won millions and millions of dollars at all the casinos. And I witnessed this. I had never seen anyone gamble the way you have. In fact, this is true. Dave gambled Table Max on Baccarat at three hands at $60,000 a hand. Well, Table Max is twenty five grand, 25. So, so you have to make phone calls yeah. and shit and then so get he, it. So he, he <laughs> calls ahead of time to negotiate the rebates in case he loses. And in order to do so, he also sets the Table Max at a higher limit. So at $60,000 a hand, that's one hand Table Max. So Dave, being an insane person, does three hands at $60,000. I never seen anything like this. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it was, it, I... I'm watching in awe, and I'm like, who is this fucking person? Right, and and at that point in my life, I was detached from reality. That's a salary I, for one... I, dude, I that know, That can man. feed so many people. I, dude, trust me. Like, the first time I won a million dollars, I was, like, with my friend Harry Kim, and we went outside, and we did the longest hugging dance for, like, we're, like, after 10 years of gambling, we finally hit a million dollars. Like, we're rich, and we were, like... 29, 30 years old. It was like, we never need to gamble again. But then it was like, wait, we knew how to win a million. Why not win a million more? And then we just kept going and going. And I would sit there and have those thoughts. This is how much money it took me to make working at like freelance jobs for never. I've never made a million dollars, you know, like, and it was crazy. And, and my gratitude to gambling or to any vice is that it feels good in the beginning. And one of those things was, oh shit, I just made 20 grand. The first time I made 20 grand and I couldn't sell a painting in the gallery that was representing me for five grand. And I was like, wait, well, I don't even need to sell that painting anymore. I had just made enough to cover rent and have a good time. So what gambling did for me is it gave me confidence in my art. I was like, now I don't have to rely on my art for money. So it's not for sale anymore. And what rich people hate more than anything is to hear the word no. And so now the painting was 20 grand. And someone would say, hey, dude, that painting was five grand last month. How come it's 20 grand now? I'm like, because the answer is fuck you. That's why. And they're like, what? And I'm like, that's just how much it costs. And, and my shit sold more when I charged more. And, and it was like, I was fearless now with my art because I knew I could always cover it with my gambling bets. And so like both things were like feeding off each other. And that's, that's my gratitude part for that. But, you know, it got dark quicker. But I made so much money gambling that it lost all its meaning. You know, I had those moments where I was like, oh my God, I'm playing a $500 bet. That's what I had to work at Toys R Us for like a month for, or, you know, like those kind of things. And then at some point, everything loses all value, not just money, but my life, what I think about 
myself, my values, everything just crumbles. So you sort of met me at the beginning of my downward spiral down. Uh, it was awesome thing to watch. <laughs> let, me, let me tell you how fucking crazy it was to see this individual. No hyperbole. It was the craziest shit I've ever seen. And it was like, oh, this is all real. And you became this urban myth. But I feel like there were some moments in your life around that time as to how you got to that point, right? Without going all into your bio, right? Sure. You born to Korean immigrants in LA, affected by the Korean riots. They were both artists. You, you, you were a thug, thief, most of your life, found graffiti. Look, I think we've talked about this before, but I hit the pole early. Right. I hit it very young. And when I say that, I mean the strip pole. If you're not Korean... And I don't even know if other Asian communities do this, but a lot of Koreans get in trouble back in the day when they used to come here. And my, my dad explains it as it's not uncommon for like a Korean man to see a Korean baby, like three, four years old and say, show me your dick. Oh, and then you just pull your dick out. And, and I don't know, a lot of kids died during the war and sickness and whatever. So it was just like a thing that happened in Korea. Just not a sexual thing. Just like, a, let me see that you're healthy. Right. And so, I, and I can attest, we spoke about this when we were in Korea. This is a thing that the world at large does not know about. Come on in. You came at the perfect time, Bill. So Bill Simmons, founder, CEO of The Ringer and The Podfather is joining us. I love Bill. I'm just here. I'm just, I'm just sitting here. I just want to listen to it. And this fresh. has been an elusive thing that we've been trying to get this guy, which we didn't even know until 24 hours ago that we might get. Cho, I just didn't believe it till today. It played out exactly how we knew it was going to play out <laughs> with a last minute Cho's coming. And then I went to go to the bathroom before and he was coming out of it. And that's when I knew it was on. Yeah. So there's so much to go into with Cho's life that I'm trying to figure out what the fuck, where, where do we start? Because well, it's been covered so much. Well, let's not just gloss over this part. Like I was telling Dave, so in Korea, it's not uncommon for like an older man to just see a baby and see, pull your dick out. Let me see it. And it's not a sexual thing. It's just like, let me see that you're healthy or whatever. And then that's cool in Korea. And then they come over here to America and they're like, no, that's child abuse, you know? And as a kid, I have two brothers. I have an older one and a younger one. Like I wasn't that shy. So I couldn't wait for my uncles and my aunts to show up for like family gatherings. And they wouldn't even have to tell me to pull my pants down. My pants would already be down. My dick was out. Like I was like, <laughs> I was like, here it is. And if I like swung it around and started dancing, they'd give me a dollar. So... I mean, I was telling Dave, I started early and uh, the brokenness of just being abandoned, like I was abandoned when I was a kid. My parents sent me away. All my brothers are like one year apart and they don't have that much money. They were poor. So, and none of this was explained to me when I was a kid. They're like, you're the one that was sent away because your brother, your older brother is a fucking nightmare. He screams and he, all this shit. Your younger brother is just, you know, he's a baby, so he can't. And you're quiet and you're nice. And so... We're going to send you away to Korea until, you know, we get back on our feet and then we'll send. But none of this is explained to me. So it's just like. You just have yeah, low self-esteem like, from just, the whole thing. Yeah. I just wake up. My mom's crying. I go, why is my mom crying? And she's like, I get in a car. I'm on a plane. I'm in another country. I don't speak the language. I don't know who any of these fucking people are. And then I become Korean. And then after a year, they don't tell me I'm going back. Then I'm ripped away from that. So that's like a physical abandonment. But there's people that. They feel abandoned and their parents are home, but no one's home up here. And I feel like you've had severe like abandonment issues with sure. your family. And it's like not an accident that I'm rich now. Being poor led me to like the worst trauma. And so 
That's like, I don't want to be sent away. And it's like, dude, no one's going to send me away anymore. But it's like, I don't like that feeling of having to choose children to send away and all this shit and like all this stuff that's happening with the kids being separated and all that stuff. And they're like, oh, it was only a month or it was only for like, it's just the not knowing. That, that trauma of being... I'm trying to imagine actually what it's like for Bill to sit down or any listener <laughs> to this right now being like, is this, convers- into yeah. this. Does this conversation follow the space-time continuum? Because it's all over the fucking place. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's... it's. This is what it's like to hang out with Cho, though. Yeah, this is, this is, this is the... We're getting the full the mystery, experience. The full experience. He's not eating. <laughs> um, there's a lot of information about Cho, but it's there's some things that I think are important to give some like body to who he is. And one of which is poor kid, struggling artist, found the streets and discovered graffiti, developed his sort of artistic talents and comes from a very artistic family, middle child. I think the LA riots significantly affected how you view the world. Did you get any shit about the Rosa Parks comment from... Of course we did. Okay. So me and Dave on Ugly Delicious are having lunch at Parks Barbecue with Steven Yoon. Beautiful, beautiful Korean man who is, (laughs) to my knowledge, the only Asian guy that has sex with a white woman on camera, you know, and that was a big deal for, for me. And I made a joke about it, you know. Oh, you called him the Rosa Parks? I was like... Yes, he did. For the record, yes, you did. Yes, I did. And I got a lot of shit for it. People are like, you're comparing an Asian dude fucking a white woman on camera with one of the biggest like civil rights m- moments with, uh, I go, I'm not black. I don't know what it feels like for someone to say, hey, dude, get up. You got to sit at the back of the bus. I don't know what that feels like. But have I been made to feel like a second class citizen because I'm Asian? Like I've experienced racism. Like there's things that have happened to black people that I can relate to that I haven't felt personally. And there's things that have happened to me that people are like, whatever, dude, you can't do that. Or you can't say that. I'm like, do you know what it's like for someone to say to you, I don't want to fuck you because you're Asian or I'm not attracted to you at all. Do you know what it's like to go to school and someone say, Hey, how can you see out of those tiny eyes, those chinky eyes? You know, I could blind you with tooth floss and those things. It's like, that hurts. I'm a sensitive guy. That hurts my feelings. I was born with this fucking face. I was born like this. I don't, I don't know. When someone goes, hey, why are your eyes so small? I go, I don't know. I was born this way. And so to grow up and have women literally say the words, hey, dude, I think you have a really cool personality. I like you, but I'm just not into Asian dudes. It's like, okay, that's your prerogative, but it, that like hurts my feelings. And so it's not a joke, actually. Like he was like, I have friends that have me. I'll use myself. I got laid because Steven Yoon fucked that white girl on camera. That happened. Like, that makes it okay. We just had dinner with Ryan Johnson, right? The guy that directed yeah. Star Wars. I had a lot of issues with it. Dave said, come on, dude. That guy's my friend. Just behave yourself, whatever you th- think about it. And I unloaded on him. I said, I'm sorry. I just, I, I don't know. Well, before you, let's just, how does this story relate to the LA riots? I'll bring just, it back. I, I promise. He's going to bring it back. I, 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 say, I follow, follow the rule I, I, of I, science I, I, here. I, pro- I promise I'll bring it back. It's like, you and me, we grew up watching Star Wars. Yes. Star Wars is white like British weird accent. And I'm used to that because that's what I was raised with. It's way I'm, not, I'm not used to seeing Asians and blacks on Star Wars. Like Star Wars for me is white and I'm cool with it and I love it. And so they go, George Lucas is bringing that shit back, right? And so Phantom Menace or whatever, there's no Asians in that, in the next trilogy that came after the original, but there's like Asian like tax collector federation guys, 
right? They were the aliens. Trade Federation. Yeah, and they're like, oh, where's my money? Like, it's like, okay, cool. <laughs> okay, we're not even in Star Wars. We're there like these grotesque aliens like with the worst, worst Asian accent, the most yeah. racist shit ever. And I'm like, all right, whatever. But then Rogue One comes out and we're like, oh, fuck, there's Asian. We went to go see it together. We go see it. Blind Kung Fu Master? It's a blind kung that we've never ever been in a fucking Star Wars movie. And the first time we're in it, we're a blind kung fu master and probably gay. Oh my God. <laughs> and so then uh then Ryan comes out with Last Jedi, and I'm like, Ryan's a fucking artist. He's like comes from an indie background. I can't wait. And then, oh shit, there's an Asian girl in here. Awesome, you know, cool. And she's like the president of the ASB club and like Glee Club and I'm like, you're projecting that. That's I, not who she is. So I'm sitting there and I'm looking at all the Star Wars movies and I'm like, fuck, dude. They've hit every single stereotype, like nerdy, annoying, blind kung fu master, cheap, like tax collector. <laughs> so you many know? blind kung fu masters. <laughs> and I say all this because we're not on TV. Yeah. We're not in movies. And so when we are, that's what we are. There's not enough. It's like, if Bruce Lee is the guy, then every Asian kid in your school, like we grew up with that, right? Like Bruce Lee's the man. Then everyone thinks every Asian kid at school does Kung Fu, right? Then in the 80s. It's true. By the way, that's true for all the listeners. Yeah. When we, yeah, we all do know Kung Fu <laughs> and we're really good at it. Don't fuck with us. Uh, and then, and then uh, 80s uh, John Hughes movies and then you got Long Duck Dong. Yeah. Right? And then that's what we are. Every Asian is that stereotype. Or the guys from Gung Ho. Right, exactly. Oh, hot chick, like that kind of shit, right? So anytime an Asian is represented in media, it fucking carries a lot of weight, right? So I just want to apologize to well, everyone right now. I remember <laughs> the, Grand, the Grandland party when a bunch of you showed up and you were joking about how it was like half of the celebrity Asian royalty. Yeah. And it was like four people. <laughs> and you were trying to figure out who should have been there that wasn't. And it was like two other people. Yeah. And then it's it was all over. true. Yeah. But Cho, how does this deal with the LA riots? Yeah, bring, bring it, it back, back home. Bring it home. I'll bring it home. So my entire community was burnt down because of my race. Like I had heard stories of what my parents went through in, in during the war and, and how they came to this country. And, and every immigrant has some, if you're an immigrant, then you have some kind of crazy story of how you got here. But I was 15. People were like putting signs on their store saying black owned to make sure that you didn't burn their stores down. So if it said black owned, that was safe. But if it wasn't, that means it was Korean owned and like burned that shit down. So if you go to South Central, you go to Compton, Watts, Koreatown, Koreatown was gone. The Koreatown that I grew up in was, was on fire and gone. And it's just, that was our portrayal. You listen to Ice Cube's Black Korea, it's like, kill these fuckers. Kill these motherfucking people. And for me, I was 15, I was in high school. I went to Beverly Hills High School. My parents did that weird move where you go get in the right zip code. We weren't rich, but, you know, close enough where we could go to the high school. And I was so angry. I felt like women rejected me. Everyone that wasn't Korean hated. And Koreans hated me, too. Like, everyone hated me. And I, I know you I, can, I hate you. I'm yeah, sorry. he hates me. Like It's a I love just, hate. I just felt really rejected, abandoned, misunderstood. If you want to put context on it, it's like most of my trauma in my entire life that's been done to me has been by black people and women. The number one perpetrator being my mother, but it's women and black people. 
And so I was sitting there. But but here's irony. Like, you love black people, too. Oh, I, I love everyone. <laughs> like, so you're talking put, about when you were 15. Yeah, put that in the context because it sounds ridiculous okay, what you I'll, just said. Yeah, I'll put it, I'll, I'll put it exactly in the context. Dan the Automator, who introduced us, just got Dr. Octagon back together. He invited me to a show, and I went backstage with Money Mark, and there was a kid there that I hadn't seen since I was 15. And he was uh, Ariel Pink. I don't know if you ever heard of him. He's a musician. And uh, Money Mark's like, hey, dude, he just told me you went to high school with him? And I was like, oh my God, I was in art class with that guy. And I felt shame immediately. And I, and I walked up to him and I said, hey, dude, I, I just got to apologize. And he's like, dude, what are you talking about? I was like, dude, I was so mean to you in high school. I bullied you. And uh, he's like, dude, that was so long ago. Don't worry about it. I'm like, no, I just want to tell you, I'm sorry. That was not cool. And I shouldn't have done that. And then Money Mark's like, dude, why were you mean to that guy? And I had to sit there and I had to think about it. It's like, you know, talking about over two decades ago, I'm like, because I thought it was a fag. Well, you're homophobic? I'm like, you're talking about me during 1994, 1992. We grew up in the 80s. We watched movies where they made fun of gay people. So I made fun of gay people. That was the culture I grew up in. It's like, I don't think that about him now. But if you're asking me, why was I mean to him? I was like, because I was scared. And I didn't understand. Like he was like an emo goth kid even then. And I didn't understand. So I was mean to him and I don't feel that way today. But that's our culture today, right? You have to be perfect. Is there a time in my life where I hated black people? Is there a time in my life where I hated women? Yes, that happened. That happened to me because they did mean things to me. And that's my level of maturity and understanding of the world. I was like, fuck these people or fuck this part of society. And I don't want to live like that. I'm not like that today. I, don't, I, I have a lot of empathy and love for people, but that's what I'm talking about. You can't say this shit, right? You can't say any of this stuff. I say any of this stuff, then you're going to take one quote out of con- Dave Cho hates black people. Dave Cho hates women. It's like, I'm just telling you, I'm not perfect. Bad things happen to me, and I want to learn from those things. But I think this puts into some context how fucking angry and troubled you are, right? Yeah. Before you, I think, channeled it into art and to graffiti, right? You are actually, and by nature. Without art, I could say this, and I'll just say it right now. Without art, I would be fucking dead right now. That, you know, hey, this kid's troubled. He needs to talk to a psychiatrist. Or there's some things, there's some level of pain and anger that you can't, I can't just express with words. And to have the outlet, to have graffiti, to vandalize, to go out and just throw paint and and just do that, it saved my life. To have an outlet of creativity where I don't have to explain, and that's the beauty of art, is you could just make something and you don't have to but, explain it. But you're a teenager, you go to, go to art school in California and San Fran, and things still aren't clicking for you, right? You're still angry. In fact, I believe you were probably, I didn't even know you then, but I just know these stories that you were increasingly more angry because things weren't working out. Yeah. At what point, and you can't say it's the irritable bowel syndrome shit. <laughs> Don't say that. What point where you're like, I'm over this. I'm going to do whatever the fuck I want to do now. You snapped. You could say I snapped. It's like... Uh, you align gambling, sex, and art, and money. All, all these things into one. And like something happened to you that I don't even understand. Okay. So I told you right now that when I was four, I was sent away. No like warning. Just like that. One morning, I don't know if you guys remember being four. It's like, I, ha- I have a great life. I don't even know that we're poor. I'm hanging out with my brothers. No warning, I'm gone. 
LA riots, you know, it's how a lot of Germans I've heard explain like what life was like in, in, in Germany before it was like culture and people, you know, like life seemed like this air conditioning, hanging out with bros, just, it seemed fine. And then all of a sudden we walk outside and it's like, fuck Korean people. We're burning you out of our city. So it was like severe abandonment, severe rejection. All those things happen with no warning. And so the trauma it creates into me is I can never, ever trust anyone. My fucking parents, the people that love me the most will send me away. My friend, like anyone who says they love you or they're here for you, it's bullshit. Those things will never last. Life has no fucking meaning anymore. So fucking who gives a shit? And I would see people like they would care about things and they would like buy something and, and take care of it. And I just was like, I don't care about anything. But that you know? was the moment where I think like everything changed, right? Where you were like, I don't, I'm not going to hold there on to no, anything there anymore. There was no snapping moment. It's like the Incredible Hulk in the Avengers when they go, hey, I thought you had to get angry to turn into Hulk. And he's like, no, I'm always well, angry. Like, there wasn't like, a, oh, I snapped. It was just... So for people to, like, it's so convoluted, it's so complex, it's so emotional, it's hard for anyone to sort out anything in your life because it's just too much shit. <laughs> so for someone like Bill or someone that's listening for the first time, can you give an example? So let's just let's choose gambling. Okay. Because if you can talk about how you learn to control your urges to gamble and turn it into a force where you can make a ton of money, that same control is what you apply to everything else in your life, right? Okay. Really, it's true. I mean, I can tell you the story. Once again, it ties into sex is my first job after being a, a strip pole dancer for my aunt when I was five was uh, Toys R Us right here on La Cienega. And it's gone now. Yeah, it's gone. It was sad. And I remember being 15 and my friend Joey just got his permit and said, there's a city that's four hours away and you could play games of chance. And if you win, they let you keep the money. But we got to get fake IDs on Alvarado Street. And I was like, let's go. So I had my paycheck. How old were you? I was 15 years old. <laughs> and I was like, Asians, you can't tell, you know, 15, 40, we all, you know. So we go to Alvarado Street, we get our fake IDs for like 20 bucks. I had a $200 paycheck from Toys R Us. And we were like, let's go. So we go to Vegas and uh, it was my first, you know, I was shaking. Like, uh, I was like, so there's this game called Blackjack and you got to get to 21. And we sat down and I won $50. And I was like, it could have been $50 million. And, and I was like, I could keep this. And then I went, you know, this is Vegas wasn't as strict and like, you know, corporate as it, it was then. And I went to the thing, the guy didn't even check my ID and he cashed me out. And I was like, I was hooked. I was hooked. It was like that first high. And so I went back any chance I could and I lost every single time. And I had the same story that every single gambler has was like, I remember that high of winning that first 50 bucks and I just kept carrying that with me and I would lose paycheck after paycheck after paycheck. And I remember everyone has the same story. They, it's like I was winning, I was up, and then I lost it. And, Not and, me. I don't have that story. Yeah. <laughs> I just watched Chang live it four days ago. <laughs> right. And yeah. it's, it's, it's why this fucking immaculate fucking city is in the middle of the desert. It's, uh, it's unnatural. And I remember losing my car. Uh, I, I had a... I had a um, Fuck, what was it? A Ford Fury. I lost it. I sold it. And uh, I was walking back in a shirt similar to this. I had a Hawaiian shirt on. And uh, one of the things I've done my whole life is hitchhike. I was, was just like, fuck it. I don't care what happens to me. So I'm, I was hitchhiking back. Well, and, it's crazy if someone's listening. Like, this is all true. Like, you have a show just hitchhiking around. 
the world. So anyway, sorry. Yeah, I, I so I, I'm I'm hitchhiking back, and it's like 110 degrees outside, lost you know Nevada, and like I'm sweating, and I'm just replaying every hand in my hand. Like I, I was up 300 bucks. I could have paid rent with that. I could, you know, and I think at this time I was my memory gets foggy with how old I was, but I had been losing consistently for years. And um, I go, everyone has that same fucking story. I was up and then I lost it. And I have that story. So how do I correct that story? I'm not good at math, even though I'm Asian, I'm not good at math. And, you know, I'm not good with numbers and, and all that shit. And I go, oh God, it's because it's a vice. It feels so fucking good. When you win 300 bucks, you think you can win 3,000. When you win 3,000, you, you feel like you can win 30,000. That's it. What else in life feels like that? And I'm like, fucking, fucking feels like that. And I'm like, fucking is almost, these are all like, I'm walking and I'm like dripping and my, my fucking feet are sticking to the asphalt. And I'm having these like delusional thoughts and I'm like, it's making perfect sense to me. I go, oh man, when you like meet a girl and like you fall in love and obsession and lust and like, Asking you out for the first time, going on, you know, the first time she touches your arm, like foreplay, like first kiss, like it's such a, it feels so fucking good. It feels like winning money, you know? And then you bust a nut and then you're like, uh, maybe she's sort of ugly. She's got like zits. Like, it's like, it's like, and so I go, how can I change this narrative? How can I change this story? How can it be? I was winning and then I won. And I go, that would be the equivalent of finally getting your dick inside a woman and being like, yes, I'm having sex and someone pulling you off before you come. I go, I need to figure out how to do that. Number one thing, I got to find someone who doesn't gamble. My friend, Harry Kim, my best friend. I go, I will pay you 10% of my winnings. All you have to do is hold my chips, make sure I'm never touching the money. Here's the number before we get to Vegas of how much money I want to win. If I get anything close to that number, you physically apprehend me, pull me away from the table. And we did it for 10 years. And every pit boss, every like casino manager was like, I've never seen anyone do this before. That would be like uh, an alcoholic saying, you know, I had a nice buzz going if I just didn't have that last drink. It's like literally having someone sit next to you and slap the drink out of your hand just to keep the, the buzz going. So it's like, that's what it was like. I, I developed a method where I can just get my dick in for like two pumps. And then I'm out. And if I checked the average gameplay with the casino, my hosts and everyone, it was 17 minutes. Sometimes I would, they would fly me private jet to Vegas. I'd play two hands of blackjack, not even go into my room and get on the plane and go back home because I didn't, I didn't partake. And then when I met Chang, I was at the end where I was like fucking every single girl at Spearmint Rhino and every like penthouse of every casino was like my harem. And, and that was the thing. Before we go on, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Today's Dave Chang Show is brought to you by Simple Contacts. I love this company. Simple Contacts is the most convenient way to renew your contact lens prescription and reorder your brand of contacts from anywhere in minutes. To renew your prescription with Simple Contacts, all you need is your current contacts, an internet connection, and 10 feet of space. The doctor's office is now wherever you are. You should really try this app. It's unbelievable. After you take the five-minute simple contact vision test online, it'll be reviewed by a licensed doctor and you'll receive a renewed prescription to reorder your contacts. I've done this. It's amazing. No more appointments, no more waiting rooms, no more overpaying. 
simple contacts of all the brands and types of lenses you're looking for and familiar with so you never have to shop around to find your lenses at the best price. The vision test is only $20 and standard shipping is free. This isn't a replacement for your periodic full eye health exam. You'll still need those, but it is the most convenient way to renew a prescription and reorder your contacts if your vision hasn't changed. And if you're a lifelong contact lens wearer like I am, you know exactly why you need this company. To get $20 off your first order of contacts, go to simplecontacts.com slash majordomo or enter code majordomo at checkout. That's simplecontacts.com slash majordomo. That's M-A-J-O-R-D-O-M-O or enter code majordomo at checkout for $20 off your first order. Today's Dave Chang Show is also brought to you by Hotel Tonight. If you love to score amazing deals at incredible hotels, you'll love Hotel Tonight. Hotel Tonight partners with hotels to help them sell their unsold rooms, helping you find sweet deals at cool top-rated hotels. Hotel Tonight shows you the best deals at hotels you actually want to stay at. No more scrolling through endless lists of choices. And even though their name is Hotel Tonight, they're not just for last-minute bookings. You can book in advance, perfect for planners and procrastinators alike. Hotel Tonight is perfect for spontaneous weekend getaways, staycations, three-day weekends, road trips, business bookings, and more. It's so easy to use. Book hotels in 10 seconds in just three taps and a swipe. There's even the HT Perks program, where the more you book, the better the deals get. Get the Hotel Tonight app now to start scoring amazing deals at incredible hotels. That's Hotel Tonight, the only booking app you need. And now back to the show. Just for the record, and we'll get to it because we have to find some pace to this podcast. (laughs) Dave is a severe addict of gambling, which I could not understand at the time. And I still don't like a crazy sex addiction. So that's, that's one of the things. And and we'll get to that, but like, you don't drink, you don't do drugs. It's just like. One of the greatest gifts that God gave to. He likes food. Yeah. One of the greatest things that God gave to me is that I'm allergic to alcohol and drugs. If I smoke one puff of marijuana, I get a headache and I fall asleep. I've never experienced like, and I'm jealous of that. Mm -hmm. I watch people and I go, fuck, I wish I could smoke weed. I can't enjoy a beer. I have two sips. I have the bottle of uh, of a beer and I get a horrible stomach cramp. I feel bloated and I fall asleep. So I've never felt the highs of substance abuse. But you're not missing much. <laughs> yeah, but everything else, gambling, sex, food, workaholism, like all the the process addictions. Yes, I'm an addict. And like, Cho at this period, right, which is what seven, eight years ago. For me, as an observer, was like, oh, this guy's going to, like, he's going to die. We talk about that. I was like, oh, shit. Like, this guy is, like, nearing the end. And it was almost, like, morbidly fascinating to watch. And you couldn't believe that someone was living their life this way, let alone a Korean American. Also, weirdly enough, as we got to know each other, because we are completely different individuals, it was also like, man, like, how do I help this fucking guy out? You know, like... Because people are fiercely loyal to David. And I didn't know how to reconcile this. At one point, you want this guy to just do crazier shit. And the other time, you're like, this guy's he needs help. Yeah. And it was fucking weird, right? It's still weird for me. And the thing is, in this society, unless it's drugs or alcohol, like, I know kids that need Viagra to jerk off. They're 20 years old, and they've watched the worst porn ever, and it needs to escalate. I know kids that can't fucking concentrate or lost their college degree and lost their rent money 
because all they do is play video games. But it's not heroin. Yeah. It's not fentanyl, so it's cool. It's like, dude, you play Fortnite for how many hours a day? You work how many hours a week? These things are the socially accept. Oh, well, everyone does that, right? And so for me, it's like, wow, I grew up in a family where we would never went out to eat. We were not allowed to go out to eat. And, and if we did, no appetizers. No, so, yeah, I mean, that's a great example. Like Tony's producer calls me and says, we're going to do a Koreatown episode of Parts Unknown. And, you know, Tony loves you. So he wants to, to hang out with you. What is a Korean restaurant you grew up in Koreatown? I was like, I can make one up and we could pretend like we have a relationship, but it's Sizzler. He's like, yeah. you, Tony wants to do a Koreatown episode and you want to take him to Sizzler. I'm like, if you're asking me where Korean families grew up eating, it's Sizzler. And it's like Sizzler with my parents saying, oh, they ate already, getting one plate and all of us quickly eating under the table, wrapping food in napkins, hitting that buffet hard like we're hitting a bank, you know, like just like a bank robbery, just hiding shit in your purse. And so, <laughs> and so as, so this makes perfect sense, right? So as I'm gambling, they go, oh yeah, all the food's comped. Oh, you want to go to Momofuku? You want to go to like Carvino or whatever? And any of these like five-star places you can never afford? And I'm like, oh, okay, but I don't want to pay $200 for a steak. They're like, oh no, it's free. I go, what? What else is free? They're like, everything. So you could come to my room and because I have like that weird Asian, like good luck, bad luck stuff, I wouldn't send the plates back, the, the, what do you call it? The trolleys where they bring the foods in. So you could come to my room in Vegas and I'd have the penthouse suite at the Bellagio and there'd be like 12 carts all with rotting food on it. Cause I was like, until I win, you know, anyways. So it's like the food shit is out of control. And, but, but Joe, before we just gotta <laughs> keep some <laughs> semblance of normalcy here. Uh, let's take Let's take a break to talk about Sizzler. <laughs> <laughs> Sizzler's been sponsoring the ringer for 12 years. Because, like, I want to get to this point where I think what is fascinating for me or anyone else that follows your career, specifically as an artist, like, things got really good for you, right? You decided because you could gamble and then you started to date girls. Here, here's, here's the one thing that people don't understand about addiction is like, I just told you a story of like a fuck yeah. Like, and I, and I beat the system and it's like, this is how all addicts are. And what, if you're not an addict, you won't understand. And if you have an addict in your family, which almost everyone does, winning feels fucking great for me to go to a room and there's a fucking immaculate steak ready for me. And there's three girls ready to suck my dick at the same time. And I just won a million dollars playing blackjack and I got paid out in cash and I'm holding it in a pillowcase winning, right? Like I feel great. I feel fucking amazing. But the other thing is I'll take the other side of that. I'll take, I'll take fucking eating out of a trash can, losing my entire life savings, standing on a billboard, ready to jump, just fuck the homeless person. Like I'll take, I'll take, see on the spectrum, I'll take either side. Cause in either one of those things, I can feel something. If I'm losing everything, I could feel something. If I'm winning everything, I could feel something. In this middle part, boring, I can't feel anything. So I don't want to be there. And so for me, when I'm with, why I stayed away from this fucking guy for so long is because Dan the Automator goes, I want you to meet this guy. He's just like you. I go, I don't want to meet someone just like me. And I'm nothing like this and we, guy. Yeah, except <laughs> for in our, in our pain and our brokenness. And so we meet and we go on the most epic losing streak. And it could have been either one. We could have just kept winning money and it would have felt good. But we just lost all of our money. Just every hand we were losing. And we were laughing and we were going to other tables and making them lose all their money. 
And <laughs> that's what people don't understand is like, if you're an addict, you don't give a shit. There's a good side note to that story. <laughs> I had never lost as much money in my entire life as I did it. He's like infinitely richer than any, anyone else. And um, I was like, shit, like I, I am actually like mortified at how much I lost. I, I have to go to bed. And uh, three hours later, I get out of bed. I'm like, fuck it. I got to win some money back. <laughs> I go downstairs. It's like 530 in the morning, six in the morning. Lo and behold, he's also walking to, <laughs> to gamble too. Like we lost that's all the money and we're like, all right, that's enough. And then we both pretended like we were That's when I was like, I see what, ch- we may be very, very different individuals. I see you, dude. I yeah. see you. What I see in me is what I see in you. And that's scary. And but, I'm like, but for me watching you, I understand. Like, I, I've never met anyone like you where it was like, wait, like I, I couldn't understand the diametric opposites ends of the spectrum that you could live. And there was no middle, as you just said. And that's what it was like. It was great to see someone just live life in a completely different fashion. But it was also like, I, I couldn't fuck, like, how I, are you going to do I, this? I, I couldn't live in the middle. Look, we but how did that get translated into your art? Because lo and behold, the only reason you're successful besides gambling, you didn't have to make art, but your real legacy will be art. How did you become amazing? How did you do it? You developed the style Look, that had art, not been done art, before. Art, art is not, um, in the same way trauma is not a competition, which Asians like to compare traumas. Like, art is not a competitive sport, right? It's like, we're in Bill Simmons' office right now. All the art in here, to me, is horrible. Like, <laughs> It's not my office. <laughs> okay. It's not his office. All right, but I'm just saying, it's like, it's, and it doesn't matter what I say, because it's whatever you like. Right? There's this, these. Uh, Those are just our podcast yeah, logos. Yeah, not yeah, I know, but whatever the, this is, like. We're really uh, going for uh, Picasso. I'm, I'm not, all right. So, look, I'm trying to make a point. The point is, <laughs> art, art is, it's in the eyes of the beholder. If you think it's great, that's it. And so that's how most people look at it, but not for me. As someone who doesn't play sports, I turned art into a sport. I was like, why do people like this guy? Why do people like this girl? Why do like, you know, and I would look at it and I was like, I could do that. I could do that. I could do that. So I trained myself like the fucking karate kid. I just go home and I was like, there's all these other places in my life where people can take from me, where they can reject from me, where they could do all these fucked up things to me and treat me like shit. But here's this one place where they can't do that. And it's art. I don't give a shit about what tool you put in my hand. You give me a stick. You give me like a fucking floss. You give me like watercolor spray paint acrylic it, it doesn't matter i'm gonna master everything so i just went into this you know i like to isolate you know I, I i go into my i could sit in a room and i could just paint for hours and hours and at the end of the day i'm gonna say a really cliche thing but everything you ever wanted is on the other side of fear right and so we're in this industry of no one's gonna die right i'm not gonna paint something and then someone's gonna die because of that like and so for me with music acting, podcasting, art. It's like the more creative people I meet, I go, why don't you try that? Or why don't you do that? Why don't you just try that guitar solo that like you've never done it before? You know how to play this kind of guitar solo, but why don't you try it this way? And they go, no, fear. You know how to paint like this, but why don't you do it this way? And fear. And I was like, wow. It's like, you know, you could just paint over that. You know, you could just hit record over that and record over that and, and, it's like this fear. And I was like, I could die at any minute. I'm, I, I feel like I'm going to die at any minute. And so I'm going to attack. I've learned everything and nothing is precious to me. 
right? It's just a direct reflection of my life. I've trained in all these classical art styles and I could do it. If you want me to paint like Renaissance style, if you want me to paint like Da Vinci, I can. If you want me to paint like Basquiat, I can paint like that. I can paint comic books. I can paint fine art. I can do all that and I could fucking take it or leave it. I could throw it all out the window because it's just fucking paint. It's just paint. But, but and you it looks say like that, shit. But and, for someone that is not an artist and like, I don't even know if Bill's seen most of your art before. Like you are a prodigiously talented artist and that's why I think ultimately people care about you. I was staring at the the thing you did in Vegas because our table was right next to it. I was like, spent five minutes just like, it's well, really look, I mean, I mean, amazing. Look, look, it's practice is part of it, but it's also like, it's not just practice though. I'm not buying that. Yeah, I mean, I think you have natural talent. You are there. incredibly gifted. Okay, well, I'm, I'll, I'll use cooking as an example. Like people will say, you're a great chef. But right? the difference is, is you know you're great. I don't think I, I it's, it's still disconnect. My cooking ability okay, is not so on your your artistic ability. It's not even remotely fucking close. I think what he was, was saying about nice. fear, though, is a really good point because I've noticed that with the internet the last 10 years especially. There's right. things. There's things. You want to talk about fear? Why, finish, why, why, aren't you, why isn't your show live? Bill. Why isn't your well, show live? Bill, what were you going to say? <laughs> <laughs> I think with writing, people write a lot safer than they did 10 years ago. Yes, people motherfucker. People write pieces that they know either will get a good feedback. They're not going to, they're much less prone to zag when everyone else is zigging to take some point that's going to be unpopular and just take the shit for it to try some piece that might not work, but you put it up anyway. And you see, I think about like 20 years ago when I had my own website and I really wanted to get a sports column somewhere and I was on my own. I didn't have that many readers and I was able to just try all this shit and some of it didn't work, but the repercussions, it didn't matter because I was just going on to the next thing. And now I look at, especially the Twitter era, I think people are just afraid they, they have to make sure it's perfect before it goes out. And that's not a good way to be creative, in my opinion. I think you're absolutely right. And you had plenty so wait, of freedom to fuck it up. Yeah. And so you saying that right now, like we're doing the show right now. Yeah. Right. But it's like, there's things you can't say. There's things you like, but, but you sure, there's no reason to say all these things at the same time because this is what you always do. You want everyone to live the way you live your life. That's not true. That's not true. And first of all, the shit we're, we're talking about why the podcast isn't live. Yeah, because we like to add production to it and all right ads. And, yeah. But the, like, I don't know how deep we're into this show right now. But we've done we've done some live. Yeah. We usually do them like reaction podcasts after NBA events and don't let them hijack. I'm not trying to don't hijack, hijack Look, this podcast it, right now. I'm not trying to hijack. I'm just saying. <laughs> Like, I really relate to what you just said right now. Yeah. And so, would you say, if you're being honest right now, do you write fearlessly today? No. So, no. so what, It's been a while. So, what is it that you're scared of then? I don't know. It, it's, well, first of all, you get older, you start overthinking stuff. Wisdom. Anyway. We talk about this shit all the time, Joe. It's wisdom. There's no reason to be as dumb and fearless as you were when you were younger. Like, yeah. he's already lived that life. And God bless him for that. But for him to have a little bit more wisdom and common sense, I don't think that's a, a um, I'm on the show side with this. I, I wish I took more. First of all, I don't write. I'm, I'm so busy doing other stuff. I don't write as much. I don't use that part of my brain as much as I did. But I wish I had more fearlessness at this point. I think part of it's getting old. Part of it is you just have too much to lose. And especially like in my situation where we have a lot of people that depend on the thing going. I look at what happened with Grantland when I went after Goodell like I did, and we didn't edit it. And I get suspended for three weeks, and the site was gone within a year. 
you know, and it was all because we didn't edit that podcast was probably like the big tipping point. Do I regret saying this stuff? And do you know that whole story? I'm learning from uh, right now. It's we, the commissioner, the, there was this whole domestic violence incident with Ray Rice, this football player. Yeah. And there was an elevator tape and they suspended oh, him for that. like three yeah. games. And then it turned out that they actually had the security video. Yeah. And it was this, the video was way worse. People freaked out. So they suspended him indefinitely after they'd already punished him. And the commissioner tried to make it seem like he didn't know about the tape. Mm. But we knew he punched his girlfriend in the elevator. And we knew from the testimony that they gave that both people were like, yeah, I punched her in the elevator. And then he gave the three-game suspension. So he's basically lying about what he knew. And I went off on it on a podcast and everybody went fucking ape shit. And I don't know, was that worth it? Like, was that worth it you, to, you we lost. had like 60 people working at Grantland at that point. Well, I mean, how long ago was that? It was September, 2014. Can so, I, can so I, you, no, wait, no. so you have a few years. So now, now was it worth it? I wish we had edited one thing. Right. But, but did but, anything good come of that? Or was it just? I think it definitely, it kept the conversation going. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it was good that I got suspended for three weeks. I'm not, I'm, there's Cho, probably a better no, no, way Cho, to do it. It's important that I interrupt. I really believe okay. this in this sense. And this is something I've always maintained with you. And one of our, on we, again, for the record, never agree on anything. You only have to represent yourself most of the fucking time. Right. And this is a burden of responsibility that I don't think you can comprehend. And I like think Chang's got dude, hundreds of yeah. people that work for what, his restaurants. What, I, of, of course, I understand that. Why, why would you? No, but you always question it. And I wish you could really. I know you can understand and you try to empathize. Why do you think? Fully, why do you think these hundreds or thousands or whoever these people that follow you that are loyal to you that are loyal to you? Why do they do that? Part of that is because you're fearless. And then I've heard you say it, and I've heard you say it right now is like, well, shit, me saying that one thing. Is going to cost all these people th th their jobs, but they're loyal to you. No, it didn't they cost them the jobs. No, it just like, it caused it caused strife. I think is I think the there's a smarter is, right? way to go about talking exactly. about it. That's, that's all, my point, Dave. And I think it's like how do you get learned. to the finish line of where you want to oh, go to? And, and and that's one thing I learned is words. You say words, you write words. They're literal. And I'm coming from an art background where I could paint anything. I could paint people decapitating people while they're like fucking their like the wounds. Like it doesn't matter. It's paint, right? It's not, oh, well, what does the artist mean? It's you don't have to take it literally, right? And so fear, what am I scared of? What do I have to lose? Oh my God, I just trained for months on how to paint photorealistic. It's going to take me forever. I could sit here and I could paint a marble and you could see the light, light, the lens flare and you could see like a drop of water on it and you could see the light refracting through it. And it's like, wow, that took me a month to paint that. Yeah. What do I got to lose? Like, and everyone who sees it goes, oh shit, that looks like a fucking marble. Um, like, and, and it's like, well, I, why don't you just take a photo? Or how many other people can do that? There, you know, the. But Joe, this fearlessness, right? Yeah. But I, by the way, I think we're on the good end of the fearlessness side, but we're yeah. probably, we're not a hundred percent, but we're definitely on way over 50. I think, I think we're both our own worst enemy at yeah. times. My fear and the decisions that I've made personally in my career, like some of the things I've regretted is simply because they were not well thought out and not that I was being scared. It wasn't the fear that was winning. It was the fact that I, I acted on my impulse and it could have been a better decision. Right. And my fear comes from, I could be sent away at any point and the whole world could turn on me and burn down my community at any point. And that's, that's childhood and, and trauma. That, and that happened. Actually and that happened. You. And so I carried unless until I deal with that. 
But, but I, I, I carry it with me everywhere. So that fear drives, you know, I talk to people that are the fucking masters of their craft, masters of their career. And I go, what was it that made you this special uh, better than anyone else? And they go, fear, anger, anger. I'm angry. And like where I, I had to show the world what fucking time it was. Where everyone else clocked in this many hours, I'm going to clock in this many hours. Where other people are going home and, and enjoying time with their families and children, I'm going to go and fucking, you know. And so uh, until I dealt with that, that's where I was. Uh, who, burn it down. Nothing is precious to me. Burn down my career. Burn down my art. Burn down every and relationship. And that's why you wind up in jail. That's why I end up in jail. Uh, like he went to jail multiple, for the record. Yeah. He was he's given a indefinite sentence in Tokyo for beating up a police officer or security guard or something like that. Yeah, because it's like, who cares? What I'm trying to suggest is when you cross that line of not being scared of fear anymore, great things can happen and also some right. horrible shit can and I, happen. And I, and I agree with you on that stuff. It's like horrible shit happened and that I was able to take incredible, insane chances with my art that most people are not willing to do. And I still do that today. And I'm like, but that's with art. I don't need to do that with my life, right? And I couldn't make the distinction. We did an oral history about Gaslight Anthem, the band. Robert yeah. Mays wrote it. And there was a quote in there that the singer said, you can never get the fuck you of your 20s back. That's <laughs> true. I thought that was a really good quote, and it's totally true. You just give it shit, makes yeah. you more angry and everything, and there's a variety of reasons for it. So um, more hormones going on. We're all, we, I think we can, everything you just said about being angry and being relentless. I have enough anger to last me for the rest of my life. I don't need new yeah. anger. And so that's when you guys ask me, how did I get here? That's how I got here. At some point, this anger, this pain, the the place where I'm coming from, it gets me in the jail. It, it starts giving me diminishing returns. So I go, okay, I'm talking to all these highly successful people. How did you become the best basketball player? How did you become the best comedian? How did you become whatever? And they're like, anger. That's how I got here. But at some point, we all know the VH1 behind the story. It all ends with like overdose and prison. And it's like, you got to turn it around. And so I said, is it possible to create the same intensity, the same level of art that I've created in my 20s using light and joy and happiness? And the answer to me forever has been absolutely not. I can't see one example of it. And then the next question would be, have you even tried? Have you even tried? There's, I think this is an appropriate time because this is another one of the most fucking bizarre coincidences. There's a fantastic sci-fi movie called Gattaca with uh, the great Ethan Hawke and Uma Thurman that I used to quote constantly before I ever met this guy. And then I meet David Chang and then he, I find out he quotes the same fucking movie also. <laughs> so I've been thinking about that movie a lot lately. And you want to explain the scene that we always quote? Yeah. From? I mean, I like it quite a bit simply because the movie is set in the future, a future where babies and probably going to happen in real life soon, babies are all being genetically like sorted out before and so all diseases and so you can get the best version of a baby and Vincent the name of Ethan Hawke's character is one of the last remaining humans that were born in the natural way and because of that he has all these deficiencies compared to his peer group and his younger brother is smarter better looking blah 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 and it really there's a lot of symbolism in the movie but essentially Vincent is the person that can't do anything because he's told that he's not capable. And all he wants to do is dream of going to the stars. And he wants to go basically to the NASA program and he cheats his way in. And through that 
determination to get to where he wants to go, he abandons everything. He sacrifices everything. His life to the point of cutting his legs open so he can grow two inches to get to the stars. And he finally, in the without telling the whole movie, his brother and him as kids used to swim across. You can spoil it. It's been 20 yeah, years. It's 20 years. <laughs> yeah. his, his brother, there, there's, a, there's a murder, blah, blah, blah. And his, it's not that relevant. His brother is trying to find the murderer and it's not, Ethan Hawke, but he's trying to figure out how he got as far as he did in the space program because he was told that he could never be this successful. Genetically inferior. like. And as a kid, they would measure their their courage by swimming across the ocean or like the sea or wherever the hell they were. And uh, Vincent could never beat his brother or go as far. And then uh, at the end of the movie, they, they go swimming again and Vincent goes way further than his brother and his brother Anton asked Vincent, how did you do this? How did you go as far as you've done? And Ethan Hawke responds to his superior brother. I've never saved anything for the swim back. So that's something that I quoted before I ever met Dave. And then I found out he quotes that also. So it's like the genetically superior brothers, like, how did you do it? And this is something I would, it was like, it just became my catchphrase. Like people would be like, how are you so good at art? Or how did you get this far in life? Or how did you do this? How did you get rich? How did you meet this girl? I'm like, never save anything for the swim bag, motherfucker. And, <laughs> and, and people like make t-shirts of it. They graffiti it on walls. They say it to me. And I was like, that's how I did it. That's how I'm the best artist. That's how I fucked this girl. That's how I made this money. Cause I never saved anything for the swim bag. And I sit here today and I go, why not just stay on the beach? If you're swimming and, and you're going for this thing, it's like, do you even know what that thing is? And if you're going for it, are you even allowed to ask for a life jacket or uh, a raft? Can you ask for help? Can you tread water for a little bit and take your time? Can you ask for a piggyback ride? Like, and, and, and that th- there's so many people that, but, but in their, Dave, in their, you can, in only, their you can only have this perspective because you've done it. But I'm saying in that perspective of trying to fucking save nothing for the swim back, how many people drown? How many people drown? Tony, I'm going to bring it back to Tony right now because he's still heavy on my mind and my heart, is he didn't save anything for the swim back and then he still ended up drowning at the end. And so it's... I think the motto now with all that we know or myself and you talk about, the motto really is make sure you save enough for the swim back, right? And it's to be a little bit smarter about that. My shit is stay on the beach. No. (laughs) Don't even... (laughs) The stay on the beach part is, I've noticed this with creative people and especially filmmakers, where filmmakers have a run of like seven to nine years, Mm -hmm. but they get super successful. And what happens when you get super successful? You go and you you get a much bigger house. You're not around people all the time. And if you're a filmmaker, you need to be around all types of people and listen to dialogue and what are the young people up to? And you're trying to capture things. You're not capturing that if you're living in like Bel Air in a $20 million house. When the work starts to slip, and it slips because they're not normal people. Well, that's so different than an athlete getting a massive contract. It's hard to like totally. continue to. So push. how many times have we seen that in sports? Always. Somebody gets a hundred million dollar contract, so, they're never the same. So, so the question then is, what is enough? How much is enough? And I, I've asked you that, and I've asked you that before. You, it's competitiveness with yourself. Yeah, but at what point can you be like, I deserve rest. I deserve a break at the beach, or. Like, but Dave, I, I could sit here and like, w- what is that? I mean, this I could, is something that we literally argue about. Not even there's other things, but this is one of them. You can take this position because you are incredibly rich. 
And you, yes, you can say that about me or anyone else. But so, like, so some of the happiest people I've met on the planet are not rich, yeah, right? Agreed. Right. And so I could sit here and argue Bourdain with uh, the amount of episodes and seasons he put out. It was like, maybe it would have been better if he did less, right? Maybe it would have made those episodes more precious, right? It's like, what is enough, right? You're like, well, shit, Dave, you're rich. And da, 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 da. and guess what? Maybe you're not as rich as me, but you're fucking rich too, man. What is enough that Momofuku becomes like a Chipotle chain and like it's everywhere? Yeah. Like at what point is... It, I'm down like, with that. You could, you could like... <laughs> But, the, like, but, like the, you're, but, but Dave, the difference is simply this, and there is a big difference between how you lived your life, which if we can get back to, I'm simply saying that like, I'm trying to align, right? And it's something we talk about a lot. If you're on the plane, you put the gas, the mask on you first, not someone else. And I'm learning that my genuine goal is I want the people that work with me and the people that we feed and the farmers to all be taken care of. But I cannot do that until I take care of myself individually first. And that's something I've neglected for many, many fucking years. And yes. I'm trying. And I do believe and I have to hold out hope that all that shit can be aligned. And my goals are very different than yours. Man, fuck a podcast. This is this is an intervention. Like that's what that's that's <laughs> like like so, you just said it right now. It's like you have your goals and like I'm not telling people to just give up and just go on vacation but, or but whatever. No, but that's what it sounds like when it comes okay. from someone that's done your life. And that's why it's scary. I know, but I, I know what he's saying a little bit. Cause going back to when I got suspended that time, I was on this run where I was working like just insane for three straight years. Right. Like to the point that I don't remember podcasts. I did. I don't, people will may, may remember that time we went out to dinner. I'm like, no, I don't like, I'm just, things are missing in my brain. I got suspended and I had these three weeks off and I'd been on this constant work, 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 work. And all of a sudden it was like, fuck that. I'm not working for these guys. They just spent me, they spent me two weeks without pay. I was so mad they took money from me. Mm -hmm. So I was like, you motherfuckers. I made, I've done so much for you guys. How dare you take a penny from me? So I had this time off and I was like, I'm not working. And my wife was like, you're not going to work. You, you can't not work. I'm like, I'm not working. So I like started playing golf. I woke up at like nine o'clock. I made coffee. I like I watched the view. I was like, this is fucking great. See, I this is so good. I was like, I'm gonna go to a matinee movie. My wife's like, what? I'm like, yeah, I'll, I'll see you in two hours. It was fucking awesome. And then by the end of the three weeks, I'm like, why am I working so hard? What what is what's the end? See, you, you So did, I get it. You, I get what you're well, saying. Look, Joe. you just brought it full circle. You started telling me the story of fear and like you regret this and that. You said this thing that got you fired for two weeks. And that that's two weeks you would have never on your own taken off, right? You would have just kept charging to the end of time. So I would sit here and argue that that was the best fucking thing you could have said because you got that two weeks. What? It's that important that he makes coffee and watches The View and watches a matinee? Fuck yeah. When you're telling that story right now, Chang was smiling. I was smiling. You deserve it, man. We also had an amazing and suspension bill party. Right. <laughs> and, that was it with t-shirts. And what did you get to do in that two weeks that you never get? It was three weeks and, and it was awesome. In three weeks that, that we as a society never do, you got to reflect. Yeah. You got to, you got to be at home with your family. You got to have peace. And so I could sit here and argue that was the best fucking three weeks of your life. And, 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 and you deserve it, but you would have never taken it on your own. And so like I'm sitting here I and I, I have a lot of emotion still about what happened to Tony. And we could talk about that also. But Tony's dead now, and there's nothing we're going to say here to bring him back. But I'm alive. You're alive. Dave's alive. And he's ha you have awareness. Yeah. You have awareness. I mean, this and shit's still so hard for me to talk about with Tony, you know? 
Um, well, Tony, he had like real battles with depression and stuff too, right? Look, I don't like heroin has the like one of the biggest relapse rates. It's like 90 something percent. It's like almost impossible. So I was always like worried. About he's, he's well, not worried. I was like looked up to him. He was my hero. He was like a god. And when Dave introduced me to him, I was like, we have the same fucking life. Like he has a traveling show where millions of people watch it. And I have a hitchhiking show on Vice that no one watches, but it's the same life. Like we just we're never home. We're always running. And people would say as a joke, hey, what are you running from? And I go, nothing. I just trap. But it's like literally. And so he beat heroin without a 12-step program. He just was like, Dave, I stopped cold turkey. And his method and his views on life matched up to mine. It was like all the shit I grew up in this society and culturally being Korean is like, shut the fuck up. Don't be a pussy. Don't complain. Just do it. Just get out there and do it. Stop your, you know, and he was like, I did it, man. I, I just wrote a book. I, I hit the road. I went to Vietnam for the first time and I'm traveling and I'm traveling. And so if I could speak about just my own addiction, it's like, it jumps. If I'm not gambling, then I'm like fucking hookers nonstop. If I'm not doing that, then I'm doing workaholism where you never see me. And it's just, it doesn't matter what, what the thing is. My addiction just keeps jumping. And with Tony, every fucking person that he came across, they were like, he's Uncle Tony, man. He takes care of people. He makes sure like his crew, his crew loves him. They're like family. And he makes sure everyone is okay all the time. At what cost? At what cost to him? Who can he go to? Who can the most interesting man on the planet go to for help? Like Dave could sit here and go, Dave, you're a great artist and you have this crazy life. I'm like, I need help. And I feel like a fucking fraud and a fucking pussy if I put my hand up and go, hey, can someone help me out here? I'm like not doing good right now. Oh, Dave, come on. You got it, bro. You got it, bro. And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm not having a good time. And it, and it was like that. I'm like uh, Helena Bonham Carter from Fight Club. I'd go to every fucking meeting. I go to meeting for fat people, for fucking eating disorders, for gambling, for sex, for love, for all of them. And I just sit there. I'd go to AA meetings and I'm not even an alcoholic just because I wanted the community. And once in a while, because it's mostly not an Asian thing. For an Asian to go to anything like that, we don't believe in therapy. We don't believe in asking for help. We don't, any of that shit. There's very rare people, Asians, you'll ever see walk into those rooms. And so for me, going to those rooms and asking for help and getting help, one day, finally, after three years, a Korean walked in and he said what I, you know, he mirrored what was going on in my head. He came in, he was like, Dave Cho, what the fuck, dude? What are you doing in here? You're like my hero. You fuck bitches. You gamble. You do whatever you say, anything. You do anything. You don't give a shit. And you're here? Oh, fuck this, man. I'm out of here. And, and he left and I was sitting there going, yeah, what am I doing here? What am I doing? And, and that's just me. Tony had that times a million. Yeah. Everyone was like, dude, you're the man. Where the fuck does Tony go to ask for help? He couldn't ask for help. So he reached out in the same way I would reach out. He, he asked me, Dave, what do you do? And I was like, dude, there's all these things. to." And, and I, I imagine that was very hard for him to even say that. And just to know, and the scary part is Dave's here with me now. Dave's reached out to me sometimes. I'm like, dude, whatever you need, I'm here for you. And he's like, thanks, bro. And it's just like, I don't, I, the hardest I don't. part for Tony, before we go back to you, was simply, and this is something I'm still wrestling with, is I got to know Tony really well, and he was all these things that he was to many people. Our conversations changed over the decade plus that we knew each other, and they were more like buddy, buddy, buddy talk 
over the first five, six years. And the more he hung out, and I realized it changed because he realized, I think, because I've been processing this, it's like, oh, Dave's so fucked up. I have to be strong for Dave. You know? Dave's so fucked up that, like, I can't, like, seem weak. I can't do this. And the, the reason why I know he, he knew this, besides talking about it a lot, was simply the fact that he knew the range of emotions that I was going through. And the only way he could empathize with this is if he went through it himself. And that's my, I would say, a regret as I still process his loss was the fact that I wish I fucking was like, hey, Tony, like, let me listen to your problems. And it would always, sometimes those conversations would happen, but it was always like, Tony would snap out of it. And he's like, I got to be fucking alpha dog Tony. And it's fucking hard, man. Everyone needs help. He had to be strong all the time. When could he be like soft and weak? And it's just like, whenever I hung out with Tony, he'd be like, how's Dave doing? I hope he's okay. I just want him to be happy. Then I hang out with Dave and he's like, oh, you just saw Tony? I hope he's happy. I hope he's okay. So we have all these guys just going around going, I hope this, this guy's okay. I then, hope he's okay. Then him and Tony would see each other back. How about show, man? We're <laughs> a fucking maniac. <laughs> That's exactly what would happen. And so, and so am I allowed to cry to my friend? Am I allowed to say, hey, dude, I'm not doing good right now? And so... It's tough to talk about. Tony loved you, Dave. He really, he really fucking loved you. And the fact that you guys had this really unconventional relationship is still fucking weird to me. Um, but he shared with you things that he didn't share with many other people. He didn't share with me, right? And I think he could do it because he knew that you went through fucking hell and back. And um, I know it's, it's tough, Dave. It's tough for a lot of fucking people. And, um, you know, I, 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 can, I know it. I know why you're trying to do what you're doing. And um, here's one hard question that people ask, ask me and, and you also, because I know how hard this is for, for you too, is Tony's gone now and he's physically not here with us anymore. And, and I'm mourning that and, and so are you. And someone asked me, if you're open, can I ask you this question? I said, sure. And they're like, how much are you mourning Tony being gone? And how much are you mourning you're projecting your own shit onto him of that could be me? Yeah. I'm like we're mourning our own death almost. And I know you did that podcast. I listened to it of you talking about suicide and, and depression and because of the nature of my work, because of how open I am for most of my career, I would say either once a week or once a month, some kid will reach out to me, whether on the street or through email or something of saying, Dave, I want to kill myself. I want to kill myself. Can you help me? And I always say the same thing. I've never changed. I said, you should definitely kill yourself. I've never changed that. And they go, what? I was looking to, and I go, no, who are you? Oh, uh, I'm an artist. I'm a chef. I'm a basketball player. I'm no, no, no. That's your profession. Who are you? Who are you? Who are you? And they can't even answer that question. I go, kill that. Whatever you think you are, don't kill yourself physically. Kill your ego of who you think. Just if you're going to do it anyways, if you're going to jump off the cliff, shoot yourself, just before you do that, why don't you kill everything that you believe and that what you thought and just try something different. I've lived life in such a fucking like a bat out of hell, just like burn it all down. Who gives a shit? Fuck everything. And I, the only thing that gave me hope, right? And, and hope is that's the thing that gets me through this is, is friends and love is, is the fact that I could be different tomorrow. 
that I could embrace something that I didn't the day before, that I could change, that I'm different today. And, you know, most of this interview is Dave asking me about my past. Uh, that's not who I am today. But I think people need to know because people still assume the David Cho that they might hear about or read about is the David Cho of the past. And I think it's important to realize that, like, you've grown tremendously, particularly because you've had a lot of fucking help and rehab. People might ask, where the fuck has Dave Cho been? You've been in rehab for a, year, a long fucking time. Look, I, and I, and I, the week, I, week-long colonic place. <laughs> look, I, any, any th- look I, I'm not, anything that someone's like, this will help you, I'll go. And it's like, whether it's a colonic or or rehab, I'll go to any place. It's and, not and, one colonic, it's seven days yeah, of colonic seven days with but, no but, coffee. But, but like, and and but, those <laughs> things are expensive, but the most help I get is for free. It's from just calling you or calling a friend. And meeting up. And, I, and I'm saying calling because texting doesn't work for me. And I meet up with someone. And I go, hey, this is what I'm going through today. I could sit here and put on a mask and tell you that I'm this and this. And, and for me, if someone were to ask me, what does it mean to be a man? My definition of that comes from how my dad was, how my grandfather was, the movies I grew up watching in the 80s of media of my fucking niece right now thinks she's Elsa from Frozen because that's all she watches. So she's going to grow up now fucked up. She's fucking has chinky eyes like me and black hair and she wants nothing more than to have blue eyes and blonde hair. Like, that's what she raised. So for me to grow up in the 80s, this is what it means to man is to fucking shoot people and, you know, just be a badass and and that's what I thought. Now when I watch like the Mr. Rogers documentary or like watching someone like be soft and, 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 and talk from their heart, I go, fuck, for me to get to that point is like harder than anything. And so I sit there and I mourn the loss of my friend and I, I sit there and they go, what happened? What happened? And I was like, he kicked heroin. He jumped to workaholism. I mean, the guy was on the road like 300 days a year. I mean, that's the most socially accepted addiction, right? Workaholism. People pat each other on the back for that. And he was extremely codependent. He always, always made sure everyone was okay first before he, he checked himself. And so I'm angry. I'm still angry. I'm sad. I I wish I did something different. I wish he did something different. And it's just, he's gone now. And I have a lot of fear for this guy because Tony was grooming us. We sat down at dinner and I was talking to 0.0 at one point. And they're like, he's not going to do this shit forever. You should do it. And Tony didn't want to speak at the MAD conference. He's like, Dave, you go do it for me. Like, and he was doing the same thing for you. He wanted out for a while. He was depressed. He didn't want to do it. And so now, Dave, you're it, man. You're the guy. You kept saying, it's got to be you, Dave. It's got to be you. But it's you. You're doing it. You got the, you're fucking Bourdain now. You're the Korean Bourdain. You got the show. You got the, and and you got even more on your plate than he does. And it's like, you just heard from your friend, Bill Simmons. He only got a timeout because, well, because he had to, you would have never taken that two weeks off. I know you. And and just so people know, like... And people say to me, they go, why the fuck did your podcast end? Yeah, well, we'll get to that. You know, like, but for me to take, and I'm trying to take more time off, but work is something that is my addiction. For sure it is, besides gambling and shit like that. But, um. You're not that addicted to gambling. I saw you get up from the table with a $10,000 chip and cash it in. <laughs> Which I proceeded to lose. Great, great you gambled it later, but I did uh, see you get away, get away with a profit. He's, he's pretty bad. Um. I've seen him. <laughs> I saw a side of him in craps that I just didn't know existed. That, that's crazy. It was Dave. wonderful. <laughs> he had 25 look, look, our, our, it was like great. Our, our, like part of 
like unchecked addiction and unchecked mental illnesses, we could keep this shit going for a long time. I mean, we could white knuckle this thing. Like I could have like months, years where like people could see me and be like, man, he's doing great. Like Chang could go for a long time without gambling his entire life away. But that fucking thrill of dropping the chips and like, you're like, this is like a year salary. This is my entire life's work. Like in a flip of a coin, in a flip of a card, like, in a flick of a marble, this shit could disappear. Like, yeah, it's, 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 it's stupid. I never crossed that line with gambling. I, I always loved it, but I never was like, like I was never over my head. But why I gamble is different than what you gamble. I genuinely love gambling because I, I don't think it, about work. Well, what, what do you think? I, I don't <laughs> think about work either. When, look, the thing is, Tony's a brilliant guy, right? Dave's a brilliant guy. You're a smart guy. And that is going to be the biggest hurdle to get to happiness. You can't outsmart addiction. You can't outrun like misery and pain. Like you can't outthink your way out of this. It's like anytime I talk to Dave about this shit and we start arguing about stuff, he'll like quote some fucking weird Greek literature or, or some passage from some book. For, and I'm like, I don't, how can I argue with this? He's too smart. And he's like, okay, fine. You win. Like this is a matter of a heart, you know, and we've been trained. We come from a tiny country. And we've been trained, we've been born into the Han. We've been born with fucking kimchi juice baptisms. Like we, <laughs> like we're, 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 we're born not to feel, right? To be Korean is like, shut up and just get shit done. Think about everyone, your family first, before you think about yourself. To ever stop and take, was there a point during that three weeks where you took off where you're like, this feels sort of selfish or like, like. Yeah, the last one got, got pretty bored. Yeah. Like, like, I don't deserve to, like, take, like, there's other people out there. No, like, I was just like, I'm I'm ready to do stuff. Right. I don't know. You're wired a certain way and you got to I mean, I, keep I, it going. I never had the taking time off, but I took time off because I had medically no choice. Like, I would physically get so fucking ill. I'd be, like, hospitalized. Yeah, sometimes your body can reject it. Yeah. I remember when I was at the 2013 finals, I was doing TV, but I was also running Grantland, but we also had 30 for 30. And I had, like, five jobs all of a sudden. And... As the finals went along, we were on the road for like four weeks. And the last two games, I was the sickest. All of a sudden, my body just, that was it. It, it like gave up. And I, I was in Miami. It was June. Like there was no reason to be sick. And I had like bronchitis. I'm on the NBA doctors getting my antibiotics. I didn't know if I could go on TV. And I go, and it was the most famous, one of the most famous games in NBA history, game six. Ray Allen shot. And I was there. I'm zonked out of my mind. I come on after. Like, I don't even, I don't remember any of it. Your body was but telling you my no, My body Bill. is like broke down. Yeah. Your body yeah. was telling you, fuck you, Bill. I no. believe that. I believe in that after that. Cause there's no reason that I would have gotten that's sick. That's true. And I, I, I am, I'm working on it. And that's the thing is like all of these things I know. And the problem is they're not always like actionable. So they are though. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's for, what I'm, I'm, I'm trying. Let's take one more quick break to hear from our sponsor. Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by SeatGeek. Buying tickets can be complicated and confusing, but there's a simpler way to buy with SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to every type of live event. Whether you're catching your favorite musician on tour, shopping for the perfect gift, or searching for a last-minute deal to see your favorite team, SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. Nothing beats being there in person for the biggest plays of the year, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. 
I have the SeatGeek app on my phone, and it's by far the easiest way I found to shop for tickets. I can be anywhere, and with just a few taps, I can instantly find tickets. I actually just used SeatGeek to buy tickets again for the awesome LAFC. Such a great stadium. SeatGeek is designed to make your ticket buying experience easier than ever. SeatGeek saves you time and money by searching multiple ticket sites to compare prices and find amazing deals. And to get you the most bang for your buck, SeatGeek grades every ticket based on value to help you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget. Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed, so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. Make SeatGeek your go-to app for finding the best deals on every type of ticket, from sports and concerts to comedy and theater. Best of all, our listeners get $20 off the first SeatGeek purchase. Just download the SeatGeek app and enter the promo code CHANG today. That's promo code CHANG, C-H-A-N-G, for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. SeatGeek, right seat, right now, right from your phone. And now back to my conversation with Dave Cho and Bill Simmons. But what I wanted to say is this, is people are like, a lot of people ask me, like, why are you friends with this fucking guy? Why are you friends with Dave Cho? Like, he is like a liability. In every possible way, a liability. And for all the bad that you possess, you are equally amounts like the positive on the other end. And I think we just got to hear some of the good parts of Dave, you know? I just want to say Cho's my favorite friend I've made in 2018. <laughs> <laughs> we only met like eight months ago. But yeah, we, we've only hung out like six times, but I feel like it's been yeah, like I 80. Yeah, I love hanging out with you. But it's important to talk about how this all went down too. And one reason why Dave wound up in rehab and going back to how we started this conversation was I got to know Cho. We started to hang out and... um Again, like he was doing this podcast and one day in my old apartment in New York, I got the New York Times and he was like on the cover of the New York Times or front, one of the front sections online. I can't remember which one was which. And I had known you about like a year and a half, two years by then. And uh, we talked on the regular and I was like, Cho, wealthiest artist in the history of the world. And I was like, that is the fucking crazy. I was like, that cannot be the right head. Like What? What the fuck? This must be an Onion article. <laughs> All this time, I had no idea that he owned Facebook stock. I had no fucking idea. But he did, and we don't have to go down that road. But after jail, Zuckerberg and Sean Parker, blah, 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 owned a, a nice, sizable chunk. Even though it was small, it was worth a lot of fucking money. I called Dave. I think I was the first person to call you, and I said, because we were three hours earlier, I was like, Dave, like you need to, you need to get out of fucking town. No, the first person that called me was, I, first of all, I didn't even read or watch the news, so I didn't know. It was a woman saying, hey, I'll give you blowjobs for the rest of your life for $2 million. And I was like, what? I, how, what? <laughs> and, and Cho got cut out of the social network. There's <laughs> this, if you get the Blu-ray, there's a whole deleted scene with Cho and Sean Parker, and he goes, goes crazy. And that's a whole nother story inside of your life that we won't get into today, but I was like, oh my God, I couldn't even believe this. And I was like, you got to get out of town. Later that day, earlier that week, and this has got now going on, somehow people knew that we were friends. I became your fucking press agent that week. I was so pissed because <laughs> everyone in the world, I, I swear to God, every news organization, NBC, ABC, Wall Street Journal, you name it, because he's impossible to get a hold of. It's like, hey, like we need to talk to this guy, Dave Cho. Can you set up an interview? Blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, Cho, you got to do something. He's like, I'm not going to do any press. I'm going to blah, blah, blah. 
was like, Cho, for me, I'm dying here. He's like, fine, I'll do it. And he does the fucking Howard Stern show. That was really the only goddamn media thing he does. I so love you Stern. Can, that was like the only time that they would ever. So you know. if you really want to catch up on show, you should watch that. I think that's on YouTube or on, on the Stern show. And then that's when I saw as Dave, Dave, your life went fucking like so out of control. I couldn't even understand it. And that's when you started to have sex with really random women all the time. And it was like, I was scared for you. And you started gambling massive amounts of money. Well, I was we like should, scared you. You should mention he, he tried to master sex the same way he mastered gambling with the impulse of true right before orgasm, you don't have an orgasm, which you actually did master. And you practiced that in jail. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you did. Like, Look, what in else in, in a do? life full of lots of craziness, there was some discipline at some, uh, there's moments of, of, of that. All of this as a side is like, your life was crazy. You weren't breaking the law. You, it was questionable. And I would question your morality and your ethics. And I would try to be your conscience of like good. And you would brush me aside every fucking possible turn. And I got to see real concern. And I would talk to your close circle of friends and family and be like, what the fuck are we going to do? You know, what are we going to do? Talking to Matt, I'm really worried because you spun off the fucking planet. Like you were... I, I have never been friends with a person. I guess I have, but like I've never seen anyone in a state of craziness that you were living in to the point when I, I, I literally lost my mind. You lost your mind. I lost my mind. I, I was it because of the money. No, I, so yeah, the, I, I think that had a lot to no, do with it. Was it, it no, it, it wasn't the money. Cause I already knew I had the money. It was people knowing I have right. the money. It was like, uh, like I'm a human being. And then now I'm a walking ATM machine. Down the, it's like I, I became objectified immediately. Like I immediately knew what it was like to be a hot chick because everyone's relationships with me changed. Not everyone, but a lot of people. And so I remember knowing, you know, Sean called me to tell me that my shares in Facebook were, you're fucking never gonna have to worry about money for the rest of your life. I was like, awesome, thanks. And I knew that and no one else did. And I had money from Facebook and I had money from gambling and I had money from my you know, my art career was going pretty good also. Um, How much were you selling art around that time? I don't remember. Like, That's bullshit. No, I, I, he remembers. It, it was like, it was like, it was starting to get up there. It was like a hundred grand. I had my first show in London and I sold, uh, I was selling paintings uh, for like a hundred pounds, which at the time was $2. So in my mind, I was like, oh, pounds like a dollar. And they're like, no, it's like $2. So you're like, oh, I just sold a painting for a quarter million dollars. And they're like, yeah, it's like, cool. So it was get it was it was it was <laughs> fuck it, you Cho. It, it was uh it was getting to that kind of level. So it's like I was covered. Like I was like, damn, I'm like the golden child. So man. he's gotten money from gambling. But no, but the, here's the thing: is art and I <laughs> but 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 I'm not playing World Series of Poker. I'm in like tiny private rooms at the Bellagio. Yeah. No one really knows how much money I'm making painting. Like or people in the art world do. And the Facebook thing, no one knows. So it was like I was having this degenerate lifestyle, and no one knew about it. Then. Because he he graffitied and uh, like did art for Facebook in the first two offices, so that's how it all happened. That's that's a whole other story. Yeah, but uh, that's uh, how you got stock. That's how you got stock. I mean, if you want to get into it, it's like I'll, I'll right. summarize because I've heard it so many fucking times. Do the forty second version. Sean Barker, huge fan of Dave Cho, could not afford Dave Cho's art, but a huge fan. He was getting, getting sued by Napster for a trillion dollars. Yeah, and then once Dave got out of prison. Back to America, Sean Parker was like, hey, why don't you, like, I, I'm going to offer you, we can pay you or we can give you some uh, equity in the Facebook.com. 
whatever the fuck it was. And Dave was like, fuck it. I think MySpace is going to work, but like you've been a fan for my my entire career. I'll do it. And that's how it happened. It, it was more like, um, hey, dude, I, I'm, I'm out of that Nap- Napster shit. I have new money. This guy, PayPal, uh, Peter Thiel, I don't know yeah. how to say his name. He's fundraising. Uh, I have some money now. I could finally afford some of your art. Our company is going to take over the fucking world. Look me right in the eye. I go, the social <laughs> networking thing for college kids? I need to come in here. And I need you to fucking destroy this office. I need you to make everyone that comes into this office not feel like they're walking into Google, not like they're walking into eBay. I want everyone that every day that sits here programming and working on this company to just be fucking like infected by your art. And I was like, cool, I can do that. And he goes, do you want money or do you want stock options? And I'm a fucking gambler. And I was like, everything you just said sounds like complete bullshit to me. And I was like, of course, give me the stock options. (laughs) And so basically the story I told you right now is without me, Facebook wouldn't exist. I I created Facebook. (laughs) How did they cut him out of the Blu-ray? They couldn't find an actor to play him. Actually, they would have played you. They would have had a white actor play you. Talk to any early employees of Facebook and, and Sean and Mark also of what that was like to work in office with that like insanity of art and what that, how that affected the culture. But that's a whole subject. So. Cho's now at the peak of his sexual addiction. And I've never met anyone with a, a sex. I, I didn't even understand it till I saw how fucking it ruined your life. And I was like, this is crazy. And it culminated in, in, in us. Like, do you had a podcast with Asakira, DVD essay, and was one of the first ones out there. And I had done it a couple times. And I was there in the room when you were talking about this story about you having sex with a masseuse. Bill, let me just give you some context. So I finished the Howard Stern interview. And then, you know, after the interview comes and says, thanks for doing my show. I, I, I did some art for him. And he's like, asked me some questions about Banksy or whatever. And then he was like, dude, like, you're fucking wild, man. You need to like, and to me, to have my idol tell me that I need to fucking kick back a little was like the best thing I could have ever heard. Right. And so the stamp of approval for me is. I have all these celebrities that want to kick it with me because I'm an artist and I would ambush them. I'd be like, hey, they would think they're coming to my studio to look at paintings and I would come in and just like fucking ask them the most inappropriate questions and go deep on it. And for them to leave the show and say, hey, dude, you got to delete that whole episode or edit this entire part out. I was like, dude, you already signed the thing. Like, fuck you. And I didn't care about saving friendships. (laughs) Yeah, and, and I was just like, I am the fucking Korean Howard Stern. Like the same way I butt-fucked gambling and Facebook and, <laughs> and painting, I am going to take over the world of broadcasting. And, and at one point, I had took a meeting to be on after Howard on the Sirius 101. And I was like, this is after one year of broadcasting. And I was like, my ego was just out of control. I was like, oh, I do one season of Vice and I get an Emmy. You know, everything I do is like fucking gold. I'm the golden child. Like I, I'm... And, and so... I was like, I'm going to take it further. And in the same way, when Dave asked me, how did you get so good at painting? I was like, I'll fucking paint anything, do anything. I'll spend fucking days painting this marble and then I'll just cross it out. Like I'll, I'll take it there because I have nothing to lose because I don't give a shit. I don't care if you throw me in jail. I've but everyone been there. around him at this point was like, um, we're really fucking worried about this guy. And, and for people to say that, it's like, I'm in the sickness, so I can't see that. Yeah. I've heard it described as like, how do you describe to someone what like dry land is like if you lived underwater your whole life? So I'm like fucking scuba diving. I'm like, I'm down there. And so for that, for me, as Dave says, my friends would be like, 
This is literal words, bro. When you broadcast, you're talking. You're not painting. Like people take what you're saying and, literally. And he got so bored and his life was so insane. And I genuinely believe this. You were so out of your fucking mind. Like you were solipsistic in a way that I've never met anyone live that you defined your own world and your life became your own art show. And it was fucking nuts. Bill, I, I, I completely compartmentalized my entire life. Like I was the guy that when I turned 18 and all my friends were like, we're old enough to go to the strip club. I would sit outside the strip club and they're like, Dave, come in. I'm like, no, that's offensive and, and disrespectful to women. And that's who I was at 18 to 15 years later, the guy that's having sex with all, all the prostitutes. Like I was a really like sensitive person, a kid. And I, I would, things would affect me more. I, I would feel like, you know, like in high school, I liked this girl and she dumped me and it took me four years to get over it. Or I'll go to the supermarket and I'll see a girl and she'll like wave at me. And then I'll spin out into like, should I go back to the... All that pain and suffering that he went through, like, culminated in the, and manifested in the complete opposite way. No one around you said, hey, like, everyone was telling you this is wrong. We love you, but we're concerned about you, and your decisions are really well, horrific. Well, that well, hold on. That's not true. So let, let me just finish. So as someone who's, like, from age zero to 30 was with less than 10 women, and all of them were, like, serious relationships, at one point I finally saw a prostitute. I paid for it. And I was like, I felt once again, the same way I felt grateful to gambling to give me courage and, and confidence in my art. I was like, wow, I just slept with a girl, like just for giving her money. And I, I, I thanked her after I was like, I'm so grateful for like, thank you. Yeah. And, and, and what it did was it gave me confidence with women. Cause I started sleeping with women that I thought I could never get. And I was just like, I was, I was so grateful. And then if it had just stopped right then, in the same way if the gambling had just stopped right then, it would have been perfect. But by the time, you know, I, I was at this point, people weren't saying that. And that's the problem, is workaholism out of control. Wake up, have to have a fucking threesome to start the day. I need two girls sucking my dick immediately. I cut the day in the middle with like a groupie, like just a girl that's obsessed with me. And then by nighttime, I'll end it with like a woman who's like actually likes me. I was using women like like drugs. And there wasn't anyone that That's was- That's fucking not true. You were so out of your mind that you didn't listen to anyone. Well, I'm no saying- No one fucking said, hey, th this is a good idea. In fact, everyone said, not a good idea. Okay. Stop doing this. I'll say, there's a certain part of society that was like, I fucking envy the shit out of you. Your life is amazing. Private jets, fucking the best food, hanging out with celebrities, fucking supermodels. Like, And then there was a part of me that was believing it. My close friends were saying, you're out of control. But I was believing the other shit. I was like, this is it, right? This is, this is what you but wanted. Like, Women rejected you growing up. Now you get to fuck every woman in the world. You were poor when you were a kid and you got sent away. Now you have all the money in the world. Like everything that was you never got and you were turned away from. Now you have times a million. I knew, I knew you were past, you were on full tilt in life in every facet. Because believe it or not, for all the things that you wore, you were still a mama's boy. You were still like super chake, right? <laughs> chake means like goody two shoes in Korean, right? I love my mom. And he was, and he actually has a strong moral backbone, but when he could not distinguish like good or anything anymore, that's when I was like, fuck, we got to get this fucking guy help. It did not happen until he decided to like literally implode his fucking life on, on his own podcast, right? Career suicide. Career suicide. Is, is, and it was honestly, I think he was trying to do real suicide too. And that's when 
So were you like making up stories on your podcast I, and I, trying to blur what I, actually happened versus? I've, I've tried to kill myself in real life, not kill your ego kind of way, where I've tried to kill myself three times in my life. And if you were to ask me what someone could have said or done, even now, I, I'm almost like nothing because I was so like out of control and so like dark. And it was like, wow, whatever I had been searching for, whatever enough meant, like what's enough? If you fuck this supermodel, is it enough? Or do you have to fuck her and her friend and her sister? I was like, I think, let me try that. And then I'll tell you later. How much is enough? Is 10 million enough? Is 100 million enough? Is a billion enough? I don't know. Let me tell you later. It it was just so out of control that I was like, first of all, my ego is getting unchecked because everyone's like, you're the best. I mean, it seems like you should be dead. I had a um, angina attack at the wind. I fucking collapsed. And all I felt... Like anyone listening right now, if someone told you you're going to be dead in the next two minutes, what would you feel? Would you feel regret? Would you feel pain? All I felt as I felt the life slipping out of me was relief and joy. Like I was smiling. I was like, finally, I can be free so of this. In this period, there was an intervention and they sent him to rehab and he, and, and he escaped. And then he disappeared for about three, four months in Vegas and you went dark. I went really dark. No one fucking could get a hold he of him. Escaped from rehab like Ted Bundy. No, no, when before Ted he even Bundy got escaped? to rehab, that's this is another real story. On the way to rehab, he didn't go to rehab. He went back to Las Vegas. Gotcha. I went and, to Tiger Woods celebrity poker tournament. Yeah, it's true. And like we, that was the thing. Is like where's Cho? Obviously, we knew brothers. where he was going to be. Maybe, probably Las Vegas, but he was gone. Like no fucking communication for months. The first intervention that ever happened on me was for gambling addiction. They're like, these are all the best places in the U.S. to go to. And I was like, I want to go to Hawaii. So I called this place and they're like, do you deal with gambling addiction? They said, yeah. And I got there and they, they didn't even know what it was. They were like, why don't you just stop? <laughs> and everyone was there for meth. And I had just done the Stern interview. And so Scott Rudin asked me, what kind of show do you want your, your life TV show to be? And I said, I want it to be like Curb Your Enthusiasm. I want it to be like Eastbound and Down. I want it to be like a completely irreverent, you know, and he's like, there's this writer, Harris Whittles, who's also the writer of Master of None, and I'm going to send him. And so I'm like a celebrity at my rehab now. Holy They're like, shit. a Hollywood writer is coming to interview about your life in rehab. And so I'm not taking it seriously because, A, they don't even know what gambling addiction is there. And then, two, like, they're like, who the fuck is this guy? Like, And so Harris, you know, we became friends. He wrote my life story down. He wrote a, a pilot. And then, and then he... <sighs> He had a his substance abuse problem. And and the thing was, because I was in rehab, I learned what Oxycontin was. And I learned like how devastating that is to our country right now and how many people OD off that. And I was like, dude, that sounds serious, man. That's fucking heroin. And he's like, no, nah, dude, I, I got it. I got it. And on my way to my second rehab, he died. He overdosed. He was a, I knew Harris. He, he wrote for Grantland first year. Oh. He's a good dude. You didn't know about the Harris Whittles? Uh, I had no, when you yeah. said that, I was shocked. Harris, yeah. I loved Harris. He was a great guy. He, yeah, he called me. He's like, I just got this show called, you know, I'm writing with Aziz on Master of None and we're starting. And then they found him overdosed. And, uh, the first year we had Grantland, he wrote this, he created this Twitter account called Humblebrag. Yes. Yeah. Where he, wrote, he would retweet yeah. these things. And I was obsessed with it. This and, whole podcast is a humble brag. <laughs> well, so I, so I DM'd him, and I think you could DM. He might have been following. I forget how it worked out, but he was like, "Hey, it's Harris," and I was like, "Harris," because we had written together for Jimmy in like 2007. Yeah, 
and he was doing it. So he did these humble brag power rankings for like, I don't know, six times. <laughs> and they, it was the best. He like, he was the only one I've seen able to turn Twitter on itself, basically. In it's like so a really just smart way. It. it was really smart. Anyway. But he was brilliant. And, and then, you know, he overdosed. And I was like, man, the guy that was sent over to help me write the episode, like he can't keep it together. Then I met with Scott Rudin and he's like, I think it's really admirable what you're doing. And he's like, I have people in my family that have addiction. And I think that's the most important thing, not your TV show. And I really, I really, like, I didn't know the guy. And I really admired him saying, like, take care of yourself first. And But and, you didn't. And I didn't. As bad as he was, it was like 10x worse when he came back. Because and, I didn't surrender, right? It doesn't matter how much rehab I do. It doesn't, like, as long as I'm steering the ship, as long as Dave's steering his ship, as long as Bourdain's steering his ship, and you're not, like... I can't see what's wrong with me because I'm still driving Dave, the ship. What, what was going through your head when you were like, I'm just going to fucking, I'm just going to end it all. So, so like, why, I still don't get what the fuck was going through your head. So I did this podcast where I would talk for like six hours at a time and everyone else was like falling asleep and like taking bathroom breaks. And I'm like, Hey guys, let's keep talking. You know, no, we, no, we couldn't imagine that at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cause I'm at hour three. I, yeah. I'm like, let's talk about Batman for two hours and why, you know, like I, I like, I like talking, you know? Yeah. And, uh, I don't know. We were like on episode like 300 or something. And all we would talk about is like rape jokes and butt fucking and, I was on the show with a porn star and like, we we're like, it was our dumb joke. And we were serious. We we're like, let's go through one episode without talking about sex. And actually, whenever Dave came on, we would talk about non-sexual shit, which I thought, I thought were some of our best episodes. Because like, that was our relationship. I, I'm not, I don't condone. I never condoned like what or how we did it. I was like, this is how we would talk. Yeah. And I was there that day. You did that fucking podcast. I was stopped by the studio. And by this point, he was doing it in a fucking insane asylum. He created an insane padded wall, insane asylum. And he's doing a podcast out of it, dressed like George Clinton and the P-Funkadelic. Like, he was like crazy, out of his fucking mind. And he said some things that I was like, what? And I, 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 I just felt no one was home. Like, I could say that now. Like... I could tell you how I felt. I mean, I could get lost in the details, but I could tell you how I felt is I told a story of face fucking a masseuse. I, I made up, like I saw the people on my podcast falling asleep and I was like, what is the most provocative thing I could say? So I just told that story. Everyone's ears perked up a little bit. It was hour six. We hit stop recording. Everyone comes in the room like, Dave, come on, that didn't happen. Well, like, let's edit that out. And the people, the, the way they say they experienced me at the time was, you couldn't even put words together. You were like mumbling, you were incoherent. And I was like, it all stays, no editing. And they're like, dude, people are going to crucify you. You're, and I was like, who cares? And they're like, we you said it. You said so you should never air that. You should delete that. And I was I, like, first of all, I said, is uh, this true? And you're like, no, it's not true. And I was I'm like, just trying to get people to fucking listen. I was like, no one listens to our show anyways. No one gives a shit, whatever. We're in, where were we at Stanford? We were in Stanford. I'm interviewing some like general about the coming World War III or something. And he's like, dude, the entire internet is calling you a rapist. And I was just like, I felt something. I finally felt something. I was like, I'd wake up in the morning. I'm having a threesome. I'm like checked out. I'm like, oh God, I have to have a, you know, it's just like, oh, I got to eat this like $200 steak for breakfast. It's like, I don't feel anything. Now, all of a sudden the world was against me. Yes. This is where I thrive. I never, ever in my fucking life could imagine 
those words being in a sentence together. Dave Cho doesn't think he's a rapist or, you know, just those two words together, like my name and rapist. I was like, oh my God, this is, you know, and I, and I, and I was back. Now I was alive again. My ears perked up. I was, I felt, I felt something, you know? And I was like, oh, all these feminists are coming after me and, and people, you know, I was so thing, fucking mad at none, you. None of my friends were like, they're like, dude, you don't, you don't do shit like that. And I was like, yeah, but who cares? And, and it was just me doing what I always do. And this is what happens. And, so and, and, and I, I wanted out, Bill. I wanted out. He wanted out. I wanted, and I, and I could say that now, but people are like, why did you do that? Why did you choose to be with this person? Why did you, I'm going to bring it back to Tony. Like, like, why did he pick the people that he was with at the end? Cause he wanted out. That's what he did. That's what I believe in my heart. And so when people go, why did you say that? And why didn't you edit it out? I could say the same thing to you. You say, I have a regret. I should have edited that one sentence out, but you didn't. And you got, I was like, no one's going to care, but people did care. And, 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 and I had no remorse. People said, you got to make an apology. I was like, for what? Who gives a shit? But can I just fill in some color here? I want it out, Bill. That's what I, I was so fucking mad when the news came out. I was just so fucking mad. And I was in Wyoming on vacation. I had rented a house in August and I had done that for a while. And I was like, Joe, you, you got to come out here. Like you got to come out because like, I didn't remember why you actually came out and he comes out and I was like, you, number one, this is like reprehensible, wrong across the board. You have to fucking apologize. And I basically spent three days yelling at you saying, you have to fucking apologize. Number one, it didn't fucking happen. Yeah, but think about- Why were you doing- I still couldn't understand why you would do this but to yourself. But think, think about a lot of the stuff like podcasts are and what like conversations are. It's like, you're using logic right now. I wasn't in a logical well, place. And, and you're, I you're, get you're trying that. To sp- and you're like sitting, I didn't understand. It's like, that's the problem that people have today is they're like, why did he kill himself or why? And I'm like, because you're using logic. And mental illness, there's no logic. And I, and, I didn't and, see it then, but I, man, I wanted to strangle you. I was so fucking pissed. I was like, we, women were like, chose rich. When this woman comes out, we got to put a fund together so we could, I go, what woman? There's no woman. Like, and people are like, Dave chose like the only person that's been ever accused of sexual shit by himself. There's no accusers. <laughs> there's been not one accuser ever. And I'm like, Joe, why uh, don't you, and I, I was so fucked. This is like dealing with, I, God, I'm just so mad just reliving this. I was so fucking mad. You need to tell everyone this. Please tell everyone that. And this. I was like, no. And you know what he fucking did? Because he fucking I, goes and he goddamn goes and tape records in the stupid fucking white padded room of an insane asylum in George Clinton gear with a fucking voice recorder that distorts his voice and no apology, no nothing. It was the most insane fucking statement I've ever heard. And he saw that his life was on fire and he fucking dropped gasoline all over it. And I'm like, it's, it's it. Man. It's, per- it's, it's perfect. It. It's what I, and then it was like, so basically suicide watch. I was like, oh shit, chose, this is so bad. So fucking bad. I, I want it out. I was like, there's, it's, it hasn't been modeled for me. Tony didn't do it right now. He's, he, that was horrible. He's modeling, like, who can you look up to? Who in society can I look up to? Every All my heroes, they have these suicidal, tragic deaths. They die young. One of the things that me and Chang are different in so many ways, but the, the thing is Chang's also a mama's boy. He loves family. I love my family. I love people. I like taking care of people. And it's just, I don't know, through all this sickness, I still cared at some point about people. And I was like, I can't see my mom burying me and shit like that. Like that stuff still came up. That was some 
logic, but it was like it was a second intervention, and it was the real. The last people intervention were saying, people was, were saying, Chang, everyone to say sorry. I was like, for what? I didn't do anything. Sorry for saying whatever the fuck I want. I'm, I'm Dave Cho. I could say anything I want. I could do anything I want and fuck you. And that was my attitude. So why an apology would sound so fake to me right now, you know? And like I said, you're trying to speak to me with logic and common sense. I'm living underwater right now. I'm like talking to turtles and shit. I'm like, like, I, I'm like, I'm like, I'm like wrestling with octopuses and stuff. And you're trying to t- tell me about like some shit that I don't care about. They're like, I have nothing to lose. What are you going to take away from me? My vice show? Who gives a shit? What are you going to take away from me? My podcast? I don't give a fuck. I can record another podcast on my iPhone. Like, there's nothing you could take away from me. I, there's nothing you can say or do to me that I haven't done a thousand times worse to myself. You want to call me the worst names? Do you know what the voices say about me in my head? I fucking hate myself. What are you ever going to fucking say to me that's worse than that? You know? So uh, that's where I was at. I mean, and I could look back and, and it, it's just... And then he went back to Vegas for a stretch <laughs> and disappeared in Vegas again. Like no one, no one heard. And then I can't remember who got you, but they got you. And then, um, that was like the real serious. And I think that those, that I was looking to, at that point for people to match my sickness, people as fucked up, you know, misery loves company. Yeah. I was with like the worst, like, uh, hold on. I, I shouldn't say worse. They were where they were at in their journey. But I, that's what I needed. I almost sick and I needed sickness. At the end there, I would only fuck wives that were married. All right, Dave. And, we don't need to go down and, that And way. I wanted someone to just come and shoot me. I, they were like, you're, you're doing it while the husbands are home. And I was like eating at Denny's. I'm like, my fantasy is what? for someone, a husband to come and just shoot me in the back of the head. And that's- I, I mean, want. I, this is like, it was so what surreal. I know. I'm like- it's just so hard to explain to anyone because it makes no sense as to how he was trying so hard to like end it all. He literally, and it was crazy. And I think something happened with your family and the those closest to you immediately. We were like, all right, I'll give, they basically went back to rehab and they sent him to um, Hattiesburg, Mississippi, where Tiger Woods went. Look, we don't need to go into specifics, but I've been to all of them. <laughs> If every place in America, I went to all of them. I spent, and that began the the long journey of you going to rehab after rehab after rehab, which was essentially almost four four years of rehab. Well, well, you're you're talking about how you're wired, right? By the third week, you had to get back to work. We're wired a certain way, so for me to think I take one week off and that'll fix it, talking about my feelings, it's like I had to do a rewiring. I was like, I don't like the way it's going right now. The answer to that question that I asked you of how much is enough, it'll never be enough. It'll never, ever be enough. Like I, I have to fucking, it's, it's, I'm going to die. And so what it took for me was complete surrender. Like I was like, I, I got to just give up the keys and like, let someone else drive for, I got to like, listen to people. Like when people are telling me like, you got to do this, I got to just do it. And so I just did it. And and that was hard to do because there was I, a lot of fucking rehab. There was a period where he would send me a psych evaluations. I said, Joe, you got to stop. I, I, t- <laughs> I, I, took, I took my own advice. So, I killed so myself. Crazy. I killed my ego. I took my own advice. I was like, whoever I think I am, this fucking like grandiose, like out of control, like my ego, whatever that voice is, like you're the most special person that has special problems. And it's just, you need to just kill that. And it's like, I can't be at these places. They're just white places. There's no Asians here. There's no Asians talking. This is not an Asian thing. Like, and that's the thing. It's like, we come from a culture where it's like, oh, you got spanked? I got beat by my dad. He choked me and threw me. Oh, you got that? I got raped by my uncle. It's like, 
trauma is not a competition. Like everyone's pain that you're feeling is maximum to them. Like if I grew up in the wealthiest family and like my dad never talks to me and he just buys me shit, it's like, boo hoo. It's like, dude, that sucks, man. I feel your pain. So I, I had to get back out of this, out of the spinning, out of control with, I can outsmart myself. I can think my way out of this and, and just, just all this kind of negative so thinking. Dave replaced get healthy in ways that I never, this is a completely different Dave Cho, believe it or not. And he, yeah, I only know the normal Dave yeah, Cho. You have, you have no idea how insane it was. Yeah. It was like a cartoon character. And as I said, he replaced his addictions with rehab. Rehab became his new addiction. And he's so fucking preachy now. That was the Helena Bonham Carter yeah. analogy. Uh, I, yeah, I come off, I, I've been accused by many of my friends and family as coming off very heavy handed and preachy and bossy. And it's just, it's because I care. It's because the weight of like a friend like Tony killing himself. And I have very, very sensitive, passionate, crazy friends that if Dave killed himself tomorrow, I'd be so fucking angry and sad and upset, but I wouldn't be surprised. And for you, I don't think you would do it, but you could, right? You never know what's going on in someone's life, right? Like people, when you say what's up, they're like, I'm good. And like, you can never tell, right? And so the only way out of this is I could never say sorry before because I never felt that, you know, I, ne I didn't have those compassion. I didn't feel it. And someone would say, you're not going to get sent away anymore. You are enough, right? That I go, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. Like I can show you so many examples in my life where I've been rejected because I wasn't enough and I was only enough, right? Look at how many people fucked me and, and were nice to me and gave me things only after they knew how much money I had. So I can show you concrete proof. And it's like, for me to stay in that mentality is, I, I can't live that way. And it took me a long time and I'm still, I'm not, I'm not perfect. But I, I just well, uh, during that entire time, an Asian has only fucked one white girl on camera. <laughs> <laughs> it's been one for the entire decade. You know what's crazy, Dave? Is like Bill's like we got to get Cho on a podcast. I was like, now you you're sure? regretting. Yeah, you sure? Because like it's gonna be so insane. <laughs> and I, I think this is easily gonna go down as the craziest. I think it should all be one part. You I think? think people have to listen to it all in one take. Yeah. Look, and and the thing is, I like to talk. But a lot of people, especially creative types, they, they have a tough time talk, talking, right? And so yeah. they, they, they go into work, right? When I go into work, I could control this. And, and people have this thing, and I'll talk about art because I'm an artist, is this conception of good and bad, right? Oh, like everyone here, you, Dave, you guys all drew when you were a kid. And it was all the same. If I looked at your eight-year-old drawings and your eight, we all drew that, that same, like, G.I. Joe, like whatever, like that. I naive. did doodles. I would try to yeah. do a continuous line on a piece of paper. And then at some point, whether it was from yourself or outside forces, someone said, that's not very good. Or you said it to yourself. You're like, oh, Tommy draws way better than me. And then you gave it up for sports or girls or whatever the thing is. But that concept of good or bad. But the same thing that Dave says when he gambles of, I don't think about work or I, like the world just time, everything just slips away. That's what art does for me. And that's what, like, whatever. I went to rehabs. I did this. I did what I had to do. And that was my own journey. But I think in the same way that you're teaching all these people about cooking and the world and food and, like, people just need to make art, man. And when I say art, I'm talking about singing, painting, sculpture, acting, whatever. Whatever that mode of creativity is, that is the moment, like, if you can separate yourself from this has to be good or bad and it's just for you. 
Like, I, I promise you, if, if I gave you and your family a painting lesson right now, like how healing that would be for you and your children and your wife and everyone. And same thing with you. It's like, but as long as you're staying with it, it has to be a good painting or a bad painting. It's, it's, you know, I mean, uh, Dave's come full circle and I'm really proud of, he's going to give my family a painting lesson. Yeah, <laughs> You should take it. <laughs> I'm taking that. I'm taking that off. And, and it'll mean something to you and it doesn't have to be good or bad. You'll hang it up and you're like, this is a moment in time. And it's, it's but it's, you've come out of rehab, a completely different person. And I joke sometimes that it's the not fun Dave Cho anymore. He says, this is the most boring version of me. Uh, but remember that Friends episode with Fun Bobby? Yeah, <laughs> Fun <laughs> Bobby showed up and yeah. wasn't drinking anymore. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a bummer. It's like Dave. I hate still that Dave, I just admitted but, that I watch Friends. <laughs> but um, you yeah, know, the yeah, one I know thing, that episode. The one thing that I I know this that's different. And I think for anyone that's listening is like Dave is genuinely dedicated the rest of his life, or at least from what I've seen so far, to like service and charity and everyone to give away all of his art, and he tried to unsuccessfully. <laughs> But like he did it this crazy a art show. Story. Yeah, yeah. That, it's it's worth so much that the the well, place you give the art to gets taxed. Yeah. it's actually like, not it's worth like it the Cubs series, the, the Cubs World Series, or you you can you can loan it to them. Yeah, and without going crazy, so Dave held this the most insane, and I'm his worst friend because I should have supported, but I didn't because I still think it was, it was just so fucking insane, and I didn't love it. But he held this Willy Wonka like art show. That's the most insane fucking thing anyone has ever done in my life. I don't even know how to describe. No one knows how to describe this thing. But in it was his way of finally showing everyone the art that he's been accumulating and doing over the past 10 years. And honestly, without going into the theatrics of what the three hour sleep no more meets walking dead meets fucking therapy session meets one flew with the cuckoo's nest, which was this fucking art show was the art itself. And it was beautiful and it was amazing. And Part of what Dave was trying to do was to find kids like Willy Wonka to see if they are were like surrendering their lives to like doing good. And Cho was trying to find those individuals that were doing good and giving away really valuable works of art. And still following up with every individual because it was all tape recorded. It's so hard to describe because there was no fucking way you could have any recordings of it. And that was what he, that's sort of what he does now is just following up on all the people that went through the art show to see if they're doing good work. And Look, so, everyone who's ever envied my life at any point, whether it's today or 10 years ago of man, I would love to like live a life like that. Oh man, if I had his money, I would do this. It's like everything you could have possibly thought to do of having hundreds of millions of dollars. I did it. And it was fun for like the first second. And then it's just, it's a cliche and you've seen it. It's money. Money can buy a certain amount of happiness of, if you're not homeless. Right. But at some point it's just. Dave's so, also for the record, the cheapest fucking bastard I know. <laughs> the richest, uh, cheapest fucking guy I know. Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm still. That's Michael Jordan. I'm, st second. I'm still Korean. You know, it's like rich people that aren't born into wealth. Like they have weird hookups, but anyway, so I've done it all with what you could do with money and fame and abusing those things. And I'm telling you, and you already know what I'm going to say. It's like the only thing that is the most rewarding and joyful and hope giving to myself and other people is to give back. Right. And I've asked you uh, for one of the first times I met you. And when, every time I hang out with Dave, it's just like, and I realize I come off preachy, but it's like, you've sort of done everything you've wanted to do with your career. And there's more things you can do, right? You can do more podcasts. You can write more shit. You can do more shows. But you've sort of, whatever the 
the mountain to get to the top. You've gotten there. I could say say the same thing to Dave. I'm not there yet. I think I, there's more things I want to do. I'm only 48. I, I'm not saying there's nothing. I'm a workaholic. I'm not saying there's nothing left to do. Like there's still things I want to do. There's still things Dave want to do. But I'm saying for the most part, the thrill of like, you know, being published for the first time. Oh, or yeah. like Like those things you've done already. And if I remember correctly, you said, I would really like to mentor people, right? Yeah. That's and that's one of the reasons like, we did the last two sites. Yeah. I mean, and that's fucking awesome. Like that's you giving back. And that's like Dave, like I know he wants to do that one day. And like- I had an idea for him. I just came up with it as he was talking. He should open an art studio in LA with all his stuff. But instead of people coming in, it's in groups- and they have to come in all at the same time. And then they have to talk to Cho for like three hours. That's basically what his last art show was. I know, but that should just be every day for Cho. I agree. It should just be a studio, but it's only like one time Bill, you can come at noon, Tuesday through Saturday. Bill, already on it. <laughs> and it's, oh, you're doing that? And it's not going to be three hours. Two it's hours? Be five? No, it's going to be two weeks. What? Yeah, don't get me started. <laughs> but why not just have it? Then every time you understand you have 25 any, people that come in that you have rational, to talk to. That's a rational, look, sensible idea. Look, he's definitely not going to listen. Is, this is what we're talking about. <laughs> I'm not even saying to do it to make money. It would just be cool. He's, he's never doing to do anything to make money. When, I, when, when me and Dave were kids, we were called Orientals. At some point, someone was like, that's not cool. That's racist. I was like, I don't, what? Except for the hotel chain, the Mandarin Oriental. Yeah. Everyone else was like, that's not cool. <laughs> but it happens all the time, right? It's like black people are colored people, then they're black, yeah. then they're African-American. Oh, it's not midgets anymore. It's little people. It's not trannies. It's, it's at some point, everyone like, there's some kind of correction, right? Because they're like, there's some negative thing to that. There's so much negative shit and it's changing. I'll give you that. It's changing, but there's so much negative shit in our society of asking for help of the words rehab rehab just sounds like some fucking playground like like it doesn't work or or going to aa or uh group therapy or th- all these words addiction mental help mental I illness i think the last year there's been a lot more awareness it's with a, it. it's changing but seeing, I, seeing even somebody like kevin love like people who are these revered athletes or celebrities and they're saying like yeah i'm having a lot of problems with depression i think that's really helped dude i as someone who doesn't give a shit at all about sports like those guys must go through so much trauma and shit to get to the yeah. fucking highest levels. They're like mutants, right? They're like the fucking tallest, strongest beat, like the odds by millions and then got to this place. And it's like, where do those guys go to ask for help? Who can they Michael Jordan talk to? I don't know Michael they can't Jordan. They leave their hotel suite. Yeah. He's in a fucking prison of his own fame. And that's sort of what happened to Bourdain, right? Like he couldn't leave the house. Like, and, uh, I allotted two hours cause I have to work yeah. service. Tonight, um, I, so go, I, I, I know you can go on forever yeah, and ever and ever. This is a good ending. Well, you guys could leave. I, I'll just go for another two hours. I, <laughs> I like that he's he's back though. He's back. Oh, he's not, back. I, we got the right. My honest, like I know he wanted to sit here and talk about my shit, but I, I don't care at all to talk about my stuff. I I really don't have an interest to do podcasts. Like the whole Macaulay Culkin podcast was me asking him why he's doing a podcast, and this was sort of like. I'll do your podcast, but it's an intervention and I don't know how well it went, but you did a podcast, I think on your phone, right? Where you talked about your shit and how many people reached out to you. After it was that. a, it was a, that's a stagger, how, that's, staggering. I'm so proud of you. And that was so brave of you to like, I agree to do something like that. And you saw the reaction. That's fucking great, man. Do you know what the most read thing I've ever written was? Mm-mm. And still the one I get the most emails about when, after my first dog died. The dudes oh. in 2009. Oh. It was the most read thing I ever had on ESPN. And I still get emails about it. But it's like, 
when you open yourself up like that, whatever thing you're going through or something that happened, um, the power of it is, yeah, you can, you, it does, it's not just for a week. It's, it keeps going yeah. and going and going. Yeah. You're very vulnerable in that. And the thing is you're a public figure. And when you say stuff like that, but it's uh, hard to be vulnerable in public right, because like that. People, it's the hardest thing to do. Because we live in a society of trolls and bullies and mean people. People shitting on you. People shitting on you. And that's going to happen. But, you know, you don't have to fucking read that shit. You don't have to. There's ways around it, you know. I, I think, think that's people how you, really appreciate that stuff. And I think that's how you get back to the light. You know, I'm racist towards Asians. There's a way I think of Asians as like, <laughs> like cold, unfeeling, like, you know, and for you. The way I usually describe Dave is like Fred Flintstone, like like a table thumper. And for you to get soft like that, and I don't even want to use the word soft, for you to be brave like that, to talk about like serious shit that bothers you, I thought that was fucking amazing. And that helped me to hear that. And as your friend, so I can't even imagine how much it must have helped like all these other people out there that follow you, worship you, want to, you know, it's like. We didn't even agree on how to mourn Tony's death. We fight on we fight yeah. on everything. I mean, this fucking guy calls me and goes, "Take your Instagram post down," and I'm like, "Dude, I just wrote from my heart of my anger," and he, and he goes, "Dude, I just did a podcast and so many more people." I did not say that. Yeah, I was like, oh, oh, yeah, so now you're talking, you jackass. Uh, you're That's not about what happened. Helping people into a competition. No, I, I simply <laughs> was just like, "There's some things that should be private still." That's what I told you, right? And I still tell think that you shouldn't be talking about those things. Those personal, personal things that you and Tony went through, I disagree with you. Like, I disagree with you. Almost 95% of the well, things that we talk about, I disagree with you. I, I said, you can express yourself okay, that way. Okay, so I'll say this now because I'm alive right now at this moment. I might be dead by the time this Stop podcast. It. If I die, if anything we've ever talked about personal is going to help someone, you could talk about any of it. Even if it's not going to help. Well, I know that's you true. Because you know what? I'm uh, dead because I don't give a shit. Like, can you guys not die before you take me to Tokyo on the <laughs> Olympic scouting thing? Cho can't go to Tokyo. He's banned. <laughs> no, I, I, <laughs> it's going to take some that's, embassy pull. That's another six-hour podcast. Nah, we can. I'll we'll take make it. it Fuck Joe. <laughs> nah, we'll make it happen. Um, but yeah, man, I, I'm glad that you were on. And you know, it's tough being your friend because you're so fucking- It's tough being my friend. What the fuck do you think? It, like- <laughs> I've like, had a great experience as your friend. I've only known look, you for Chang, eight months. Chang always says, I don't, I, don't, I don't understand his life because it's just me. I'm an artist. I don't have employees. He's the guy that, that runs all these people. It's like people that work with him, well, how are you friends with this guy? <laughs> and and, 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 and all, a, a lot of times when I go to his house and then I leave, when I finally get in the car like, to leave is when I finally exhale. I go, oh, I love you, man, but you're so hard on yourself and you're so like... Your anxiety gives me anxiety. It's like, it's hard to be friends with you too, man. The ringer's been good for Chang. I think yeah, we've mailed you out. it's been really good. LA's been good. You have a podcast, you can talk about stuff. Yeah. It's nice out every day. It is. Dude, do like 10 more and then drop out, man. You don't want, you don't want to live this pod life. <laughs> Fuck the pod life. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> dude, and then you walk down the street and everyone's like, dude, I connect with you, bro. I heard all that shit, man. Like, all right. Oh, we, we're come giving, on, Joe. We're, we're giving Joe You just won the audience back. Look, enough first of all, let me just say, Thank you for having me on your podcast. That's what it's I have today that yeah. I never had before is gratitude. I can huh. sit here huh. and be like, hey, you just fired me for three weeks. Thank you for that. Oh, like I have severe, severe gratitude today. I wake up every morning. It's changed my entire world to be like, oh, I got to do fucking Chang's podcast because he keeps asking me to. I get to talk to my friend for two to six hours and my new friend, Bill Simmons. It's like, just don't move to Florida. 
he's going to. It sucks. Florida sucks. You can't go there. Florida or Germany. Um, so yeah, I have a lot of gratitude today. So that's what I wanted to say. And, and thank you for, for having me on your show. And thank you for everyone who listened all the way through. And thank you to everyone who stuck with all my shit and all my bullshit. They'll, you know, I'm not perfect and there'll be more ups and downs, but I'm happy to be alive today. I'm, I'm grateful to be alive Thanks, today. Dave. Thank you, Bill, for joining in. Thanks, Dave. And, and Dave. it was done. Cho Chang. Cho Chang. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Dave Chang Show with Dave Cho and Bill Simmons. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you understood why we decided to do the pod. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please give us a rating of five stars and review it five stars because uh, I don't want to be tiger parented by Bill. We'll be back again next week. Thanks again for listening.